0: Author of Hidden History, Crimes and Cover Ups in American Politics, 1776 to 1963, and Survival of the Richest, Donald Jeffries separates the real from the unreal. Fact from fiction. Fact from fiction. Reverse engineering our manufactured reality. And now, from just outside the swamp infested Washington, D.C., this is I Protest with Donald Jeffries. And welcome to iProtest. This is Donald Jeffries coming to you every Friday as I do at this time as the voiceover says right outside the swamp at Western Washington DC. Very special guest today. Uh, Those of you who probably might have seen back in the day a 1995 film called Oklahoma City, A Noble Lie. We have Christopher Emery here. Chris is uh, one of the co-producers of that film. He's done lots of other stuff on 9-11 and everything else. I'll let him talk about uh, all his other accomplishments, but uh, very happy to have me. We're going to talk about Oklahoma City and the connections to 9-11 and whatever else he wants to discuss. Chris, thanks for coming on the show.
1: Well, thank you, Don. I appreciate the invite. And um, it's always an honor to be on. And uh, thank you for Tony for uh, helping me get on and being on producer side.
0: Well, thanks to is Mary. Uh, I think Mary Ellen Moore is the one who uh, set this up, right? She, she's uh, my friend on Facebook, and uh, she, was in, she was involved in uh, the same film, right? She is, uh, she helped us on uh, the
1: third film, uh, Shadow Ring, but Mary Ellen is our director of public affairs and has done a wonderful job. We're very blessed to have her on board. And she's been with us, I think, for good God, almost 10 years now. So uh, we we released the, the 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 title of the Oklahoma City film, just to help you out here, is Oklahoma City, uh, A Noble Eye, Oklahoma City, 1995. It was actually released in December of 2011. And um, we're very blessed to, it's still very successful. Our film agent in Los Angeles, who uh, took us under his wing after Amazon censured us after two and a half years of being on their platform, said, we need more documentaries like yours. So I'm not tooting our horn, but this is a timeless subject, just like several other great filmmakers uh, out there. And uh, this never never dies, it's always relevant, so.
0: Sure, and I'm, I'm gonna be dying. I- My up next edition of Hidden History, which was going to be Hidden History Three, I don't know what it's going to be called now, but that'll be be coming out later this year. And I I, I went back into that uh, a lot more into Oklahoma City, along with many other things. But so let's let's talk about. So is was the Oklahoma City event what triggered your uh, interest in these kinds of politics?
1: um, I I went back to the Federal Reserve studying that back in the late uh, mid to late nineteen nineties. And then um, the uh, shootout at Ruby Ridge, if on my sure. i-com proof, profile, it, it lays out some of the cases that I studied. Uh, but I rewind the tape even back, I'll never forget this. I was, wasn't even 10 years old and I had just moved to Madison, Wisconsin. And it was the uh, Sterling Hall bombing. It was uh, uh, on August 23rd, 1970 at 3.49 in the morning. It was actually the morning of the first day of classes officially on campus at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. Little did I know at that time that um, we're moving ahead to 2003. So 33 years later, almost to the day, almost to the week, I would be interviewing one of the co-conspirators in that case. And uh, the, the the twist of irony is that uh, his name was Carlton Armstrong. There were four guys that pulled that off, him and his younger brother, Dwight, uh, David Fine, and, and Leo Burt. We now know, and there's 99.9% Evidence of all, there was a pointing in the direction he was a provocateur with the FBI and and the Justice Department to provocateur goad these guys on. Anyway, um, in August of uh, 2003, I would fly up to Madison um, where I was living in Oklahoma City then at that time and um, meet with him. And he, he walked me through the whole thing and I gave him a copy of the final report, which our Oklahoma City film was based on. Two weeks later, we talked on the phone and he said, there's no way. That Tim McVeigh and Terry Nichols could have pulled off the Oklahoma City right. case by themselves. So anyway, um, we can delve into that later. But it, I mean, who would have thought? You know, how many years yeah. later, meeting with one of the co-conspirators, he actually served eight and a half years of a 14-year prison sentence for one count of involuntary manslaughter. They had no idea of anybody was in the building at the time. And um, so he was uh, let out early on parole and uh, he laid the whole story out. It's fascinating.
0: No, it, it definitely is. So that's so, but the Oklahoma City case, I assume was the first big event that you obviously you decided to, to be so involved that you ended up how, how did this how did the film come to uh, come about? Um, good question. in In a nutshell, uh, there was a
1: uh, a colleague of mine in, in Fort Worth, Texas. I was living in in Fort Worth at the time that I really kind of sucked my teeth into the case. and he showed me uh, unedited raw footage, about two and a half hours of footage. that was shot by a PBS. Uh, the footage was combined between PBS and ABC affiliate in um, Oklahoma city and Tulsa. And um, he said, you just come on over to the house. I want to show you about 45 minutes of this. See what you think. I had no interest in Oklahoma city, but uh, after two and a half hours of, and I I saw the footage, I walked out of his house and I was numb. I says, all right, there's what I saw on that raw footage, clearly uh, destroyed the official narrative. And then some, and I told him, I says, I'm going to find if there's a will, there's a way of funding and eventually relocate to Oklahoma City to work on the film. So seven months later, I was moving to Oklahoma City and uh, bit by bit, we had to get the crew together and, and all of us had our own full time jobs. We didn't have the money. We figured out a way to get that and the equipment and <laughs> the <laughs> stories are legend as far as where we got the cameras from and how we paid for them. It was just amazing. And God, like, like I told a, a colleague of mine in an interview last year. If you do good, God is going to lead you in the right direction. And I I swear divine intervention came into play at least once, if not twice a month in that project.
0: Well, I've had, um, again, I've written a lot of, I've I've had Representative Charles Key on my show a couple of times. I'm sure you probably know him. Oh, yeah. yeah. Great great guy. One of the few people left that's out there. I mean, a lot of these people, I wanted to try to get uh, to David Hoffman that wrote Oklahoma City and the Politics of Terror. And that, you know, he, do you know (laughs) anything? Yeah, he died very strangely in another country, according to Representative Key, like in police right. custody or something.
1: He was, and uh, they, they had him on uh, weapons charges and uh, just very odd. I think it was in Poland or Czechoslovakia. Just, uh, But, you know, that's apropos for David. And, uh, things weren't quite, <laughs> quite <laughs> on bubble with David. It was always well, very peculiar, but he did good work, but he just came at it in a different approach. Charles um, yeah. and I uh, met, oddly enough, in, in June of 2001, where this is a full three and a half months before 9-11, uh, or about three months before 9-11 happened. And um, I'll never forget that. And here we are, how many years later? Uh, 22 years yeah, yeah. Uh, this, mm-hmm. this June. Well, and um, here's here's another kicker. His birthday, you're not going to believe this, <laughs> is on April 18th, the day before the Oklahoma City bombing happened.
0: This is, this is Charles this is Key? Charles Key's birthday, no, yeah. I, I, yeah. He didn't tell me that, wow. <laughs> at least, yeah, that's another oddity,
1: but... Charles, uh, we, we we actually texted last week. He's uh, going to be doing a presentation to a big Republican uh, political action committee uh, party and uh, group, and uh, for the leading up to the twenty, uh, twenty eight year anniversary.
0: Well, uh, you're, gonna, you're 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 you I, th- I know you're going to have lots of questions from the audience. Here. We already have one from Chris Graves, who's uh, who's done lots of research for me. Yes. What what does the guest know, if anything, about the helicopter seen above the Murrah building at the time of the blast? General Ben Parton was given photos taken from that helicopter.
1: Well, we know that there were... That's a good question because we actually saw footage uh, from the uh, photos uh, that were taken from the the helicopter and uh, footage that was kind of mixed in with some of the news media footage. And Channel... I believe it was Channel 9 out of Tulsa also had a chopper flying over there. So... In a nutshell, what you saw on network news and a lot of that, the news feed, uh, literally within three or four hours after the bombing, that was coming from the, believe uh, believe the ABC affiliate chopper. We do know that the Oklahoma City Police Department had a helipad uh, port less than two miles away from the bomb site, right there on the Oklahoma River. And the Oklahoma County Sheriffs had uh, a chopper up there. So there were three in the mix within about four to six hours after the bombing. Um, I don't know if there was any uh, nefarious helicopter up there, but I do know of those three for sure. And they were, they were taking uh, crime scene footage and trying to figure out what was going on. And uh, so that's, that's the best that I, I know of right now. But um, that, that literally that, the, the footage you saw within a half hour after the bombing was taken by the Channel 9 uh, affiliate out of Tulsa.
0: Well, what when you, when you, um, when you made the film, and again, I, I think I saw it a long time ago, so I, I'm trying to remember it. And there were you know there were a couple other films that were made about Oklahoma City as well. And specifically, what was in it? Uh, did you? Because I've Representative Key talked about it, and just trying to call people or relatives of people at this age, I found that uh, very few people want to talk. Let's Put it that Correct. way. I I actually called uh, and and talked to Timothy McVeigh's dad last year. Very, but it was you know like a minute. Wow. You know, he wouldn't talk. I, I'm amazed. It's the answer the phone, but he wouldn't talk. I'm that. amazed
1: you were able to get a hold of him. Because
0: oh, I, me too.
1: Him. I me was too.
0: Yeah, me too. I was shocked. I've been trying to get a hold of the sister, but uh, it was usually these people, their phones are disconnected when you look them up. They've they they you know they've been disconnected and nobody, you know, you can't get a hold of them, but he actually answered the phone and I, but, you know, he, he didn't want to talk. I didn't want to talk at all about it. I said, okay, whatever. Sure. Yeah, I think your son was, you know, <laughs> I think he was a patsy, but he didn't want to hear it. So I guess he's, he's heard that before. So who, what witnesses did you get to talk? And I know hopefully Chris will bring these up and I should, I should know that I researched so much, but there was a woman, the original woman that ran the daycare center that representative keys talked about is, is afraid, still afraid to talk. Um, and there was the guy that was, uh, God, I can't believe I can't remember these names. Uh that uh, right after was was seen rescuing a bunch of people. And uh, then- Terrence, Terrence
1: Yickey, uh, Officer Yickey. I was just uh, uh, printing out a bio I had of him. And- um, Well, no, he, it's
0: not it's not Yaki. but go ahead and talk about it. Because Yickey was the cop. He's very interesting too, that uh, killed himself well, in such he was, an incredibly, crushed way. Well,
1: he was issuing, uh, Officer Yickey was issuing a traffic ticket at the um, Civic Center Music Hall. And I believe that was about six or eight blocks from the bomb site. He jumped in his black and white squad car Dropped his ticket book, and, and we we talked to the gal he was issuing the ticket to, and she was kind enough to return it back to the uh, the police department headquarters, not far from where she was actually. But Terry sped off and went right to the the crime scene, and he pulled eight people out. This is while he was um, he had a really bad back; he was going through uh, uh, therapy, and, and it was uh, believe he was going through, going to have some back surgery done. But the adrenaline just kicked in. This guy. Best of my knowledge, stood six foot five, six foot six, weighed about 275 pounds, big guy, Um, pretty much all muscle. And again, that that adrenaline kicked in and he was just in overdrive and picking people out of there. And um, yeah, he was he saw uh, someone exploded ordinance, wrote up a 13 and a half page report to his commanding officer, Lieutenant Joanne Randall. She told him to cut it down to a page and a half. And and he just flat out told her, he says, I'm not going to lie for anybody. <laughs> I'm gonna. I'm going This is what I saw, and I'm not lying for anybody. Well, a year and three weeks later, he was brutally murdered, found uh, a mile and a half from the front gate of the Al Reno Federal Penitentiary, uh, which is about 32 miles west of downtown Oklahoma City, the crime scene, and uh, out in a farm field, uh, murdered, uh, tortured, and uh, shot. Execution cell. They found him leaning against a tree, no weapon. Uh, the The coroner did acknowledge to us. Off the record, that uh, the shirt that he was wearing, then they brought him in. He was deceased. Uh, did have the blood of somebody else on the shirt. So, I mean, that's 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 a whole other. We did an eight and a half minute segment on that uh, in the in the film, and but that that's that's a whole other film for another time that we could do.
0: No, I was mm-hmm. talking about that, and I, Yankee, That's and I, I, I've been trying to get hold of his members of his family too. They were a lot of times in these cases, they're outspoken for a while. Correct. Yeah, at 9-11 as well. But at this point I can't get a hold of his, uh, well,
1: let, me, his, let me bring you up to speed on that real quick. Yeah, okay. Then, please. His, uh, Vicki, his, um, the oldest sister had passed away. Okay. The mom had passed away shortly after that. The grandmother, Mary Kuykendall, uh, she, I believe she was 93. She passed away. Um, I moved here in 2015. I'm in uh, central Florida. And, um, she passed away the year after I moved here. So he only has out of all the people that we worked with only has the one surviving sister, the family. And I haven't been able to get in touch with her for about a year and a half. Uh, last time through just a quick Facebook chat and that was it. So, yeah, you know, who you saw in the film and there's a, uh, YouTube video out there just actually oddly enough, just saw it a few nights ago. Um, uh, we are change Oklahoma. We put that together and, um, uh, you know everybody we interviewed there has passed on, ex- and, and just just uh, Sean is the well,
0: only surviving sister. Well, what about his? Because wasn't his wife outspoken and talking about threats and all that stuff?
1: Yes, uh, but uh, she she went silent, and uh, yeah, yeah, and then she really turned on us, and we just had to break ties with her. It was unfortunate, but in the, in the nutshell, the reason we know that Terry uh, did not commit suicide, he was already interviewing with the FBI field office uh, in Irving, Texas. For Dow- At least he was doing his interviews in Irving, whether it had been with the Dallas field office or uh, Fort Worth. We don't know uh, who he's going to specifically work with. But he was he got to the point where they were actually spending. And we found out through a colleague of his that when you take a drug analysis test with the FBI, they they drop some serious money on that. And the only reason they do that is when they're serious about hiring. you. So all of the arrows were not pointing in the direction of him committing suicide. Uh, it just didn't make any sense. It didn't add up. And what we found out from uh, some uh, uh, reserve deputies from the um, Canadian County Sheriff's Office—not uh, not, it's not Canadian County—it's um, is the, the the county just west of Oklahoma uh, County. Some of their deputies said that uh, the crime scene that where they found him—they don't know who they were, whether they were federal authorities or whoever. We we still don't know. But they came in and basically turned the crime scene over with spade shovels within 15 minutes after taking Terry's body out. There's no forensic, no bullets, no casing, yeah, yeah no, no blood samples, nothing. It was all ruined immediately. We do know. Now this is odd, that it was on federal land. Okay, that was that was farmland that was leased uh, to a private farmer in in that that county uh, west of Oklahoma County. Um, by the federal government because it was prison land. It was, uh, it was federal prison land, but it was farmland. So the federal authorities had jurisdiction to come in there. So we had Sam Gonzalez, who was the police chief at the time for Oklahoma City, and Bob Ricks, who was the uh, lead uh, FBI um, special agent in charge, who was fired from the Oklahoma City uh, bombing uh, investigation four days or eight days after the bombing by Louis Free. Why in the world he would show up? This is a year and three weeks after the bombing. He shows up in a helicopter with Sam Gonzalez. They did a quick purview at 15 minutes and left. After that is when the crime scene was destroyed. So we know for a fact that those two had absolutely no interest whatsoever in maintaining the integrity of the crime scene and finding out what happened to Officer Yaki. It was absolutely disgusting. And I hold yeah, those two yeah. still responsible to this day, in part, for what happened to Terry Yaki and, and the uh, the yeah. after and how the yeah. family was completely disrespected.
0: Very sad. Thank, thanks to Chris Gray, he he jogs my memory all the time. The, the, the guy it's I'm a really.
1: I'm going to shout out to him. Thank you, Chris.
0: Oh, you know what? Well, Chris, you're getting, everybody knows him now. It's amazing. He's becoming the world's most famous researcher. He's incredible. He is. He is just amazing. He's he he gives me stuff uh, all the time. But Mike Loudenslager, that's the guy that really interests me. What What do you oh, know about good. him? I I can't find anything on him.
1: Well, okay. Here's the, okay. So. How do we put this in a nutshell? Michael is the only victim from the Oklahoma City bombing, noted in the Oklahoma City National Memorial, that wasn't cited for any specific died of injuries or anything like that. He just there was It's a very cursory and very vague reference to his passing. In the memorial, everybody else was, they, they died of their injuries or they're specifically where they were. What we know of, of Michael Ladenschlager, and I found this out from a uh, search and rescue uh, personnel shortly after I moved to Oklahoma City. It was in uh, the spring of, of 2003. Michael knew full well that there, was, um, there were blasting caps and some form of ordinance in the daycare center. Um, this is now, okay, so it's, the, the bombing happens on the 15th. The inspection had to be done on April 1st in order to recertify these certificate of occupancy for this America's Kids Daycare Center. It wasn't a federal, uh, you know, it wasn't the credit union. It wasn't the FBI. It wasn't, well, the FBI wasn't even in the building. They were in a separate building. Uh, they had the Secret Service in there. So it was kind of a, a a hybrid situation where, yes, they were taking care of the kids, of the federal employees, but they weren't actually a federal agency. So they had to have a, a certificate of occupancy. Michael Laudenschlager was there when the assistant fire chief came in to inspect it, to, had to sign off on the certificate of occupancy and safety. Federal authorities would not let him open the lock to that storeroom under the daycare. And Loudoun's was there and he hit the roof. And he said, hey, he knew of some of the management of the daycare. And he says, you, you're talking four month old to, what, 12-year-old kids in there, plus the adults. So when the bombing happens, and I've got this directly from a um, search and rescue personnel, I'm not going to name who they were with, I, maintaining the confidentiality. They were there less than 15 feet away from Michael Louden'slager He was beating the tar out of one ATF agent, an FBI agent, and it took this individual and at least three other personnel between the Oklahoma City Police Department and the fire department to pull Ladenschlager off of him. He would have killed these guys because he was furious. He knew that th- there was damage to the building, but it was even more extensive because of the ordinance and the devices. They were in that storeroom under the daycare center. So that's that's literally on Wednesday at between 9.30 and 10 o'clock. The bombing happens at 9.02. Well, we found out that they find Michael at his desk on Sunday morning. Again, this is coming from the search and rescue personnel, uh, the person that I uh, spoke with. Um, in the middle of the night, well, early morning hours of Sunday, he's found face down at his desk with a pool of blood, laying in a pool of blood. Shot in the back of the head. Now, how in the world does that happen? It was set, it was basically done as a message to keep your mouth shut, don't start asking any questions. And I'll be damned if you can start beating any of our, our um, people up here because you're pissed off with what you knew would happen two and a half weeks before the bombing. And uh, so, we were set to get his wife on our film,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and uh, we we're all ready to go. We showed up, and she canceled three hours in advance, two and a half, three hours in advance before our film crew uh, was ready to show up at her to the door. Yeah, she just backed out at the last minute. We had that happen with one other, uh, Jermaine Johnson, who was an eyewitness to McVeigh and why he was sitting on the, the hood of his car with one of his accomplices uh, when he was allegedly on his way up the interstate to, toward the Kansas border. So that completely mixed up that whole story. She didn't want to come on. Uh, backed out literally within an hour after we, were, we even hired a stringer photographer to come up from uh, Dallas, spent, uh, spent good money to get him up there because we were short on crew. And she canceled it. the last minute. I'll never forget it. So, yeah, it's. I'm sorry. We go on and on with these backstories, but
0: no, because yeah, uh, as Chris, as Chris points out, Yiki saw Michael Loudon-Slager alive after the blast too. I think uh, that, and that's it, it's a shame you because I you know, his name is rare enough, and I love yeah. it when you because it's you know it's hard when you're looking for a Lewis or something. But Loudenslager Slager, and so we can find relations out there, but none of them will talk. And so you no. don't get to talk to any of them, right?
1: No, we, we, we did talk to the wife, and I believe – now, I didn't personally, but one of our uh, uh, production assistants and researchers, uh, she was really good. Uh, she was able to talk, I believe, to one of the kids, either the daughter or the son. If I'm not mistaken, it was the son. And it was the son that talked the mom out of uh, coming on the camera. They set the mom up with a pretty good job with, uh, I believe it was the FAA. They, Oh, yeah. They, yeah, they, they really, they patted the salary on that real good. And uh, so we were putting two and two together before we were going to start rolling tape. We kind of knew what we were walking into, but it's unfortunate she canceled on this the last minute. The, um, the, the tragic thing about Michael, and like I said, you can go into the Memorial Museum to this day. And that was their last... April 19th for the 27 year anniversary. And I, I made a point to look and sure enough, they still had the same text and, uh, you know, little reference to his uh, name and his picture. And uh, they're very careful. They're walking very careful and and not saying how he died. And I thought, wow, this is weird. You know, the only one of the 168 victims that they're, they're walking very uh, lightly and on, on thin ice pretty much is what they're doing. And they didn't want to come out and say what happened to him. So,
0: okay just, just imagine if we had uh, if we had a real free press in this country with, with all these you know these witnesses that are out there in the beginning and now by the time you made the film how many how long had elapsed between the time uh, of the bombing and when you guys uh, produced this film
1: okay we started actually uh pre-production was in 2003 we really started in earnest in august of that year so we're talking um a full eight and a half years uh, after the bombing, and then it was released in December of 2011, so uh, yeah, we're talking uh, what would have been...
0: Okay, uh, so it's actually, 15 years or so 15 16 years. Here's
1: another weird thing. I remember the Dead Center Film Festival, they have South by Southwest in Austin, Oklahoma City. Actually, it's a very good film festival called the Dead Center because Oklahoma City geographically is right like three hundred miles off center of the U.S., uh, Manhattan, Kansas, I guess, is a dead center. Anyway, we we entered that film festival with our film, and we were starting to get some some traction. We were getting invited to at the time uh, about one or two film festivals. They didn't accept our film, and it's like, what? What? This makes no sense. This is. We were. We knew it was a good film, and we weren't bragging about it. But it was very objective. It wasn't poking anybody in the eye. We weren't pointing any fingers. We just say, "Hey, this is the information." And ninety. And I, I swear to God, ninety-five percent of the information we had was either based on uh, sworn affidavits, uh, Justice Department's own documents, uh, retired FBI, local county, state, and federal law enforcement. So we to the. We just couldn't figure out why we weren't accepted. So what I did, we did an end run around these guys. This is all right. They had a special edition of the independent paper the Oklahoma Gazette. We took out a full-page ad for a film. And we said, all right, you're not going to get us in the film festival. We're going to at least let them know the attendees and the participants and the other filmmakers know what what we're all about. We weren't going to let them uh, brush us under the rug. And um, we had, uh, I, I remember getting a handful of emails from other filmmakers like, why didn't they accept you in the film festival? It's like, so that was on them but anyway we just were able to we entered 42 film festivals 10 accepted us we were very honored to get best picture in 4 and a finalist of 2 and our colleagues in LA were laughing in disbelief on the phone He says nobody does that but again I'm not patting myself on the back but that's how good the film was and it was complete strangers our peers in the industry had no idea who we were so and that's where our film agent to this day in LA says please he says they realize this has been out for this December will be 12 years. He said, but we need more work like this. So well, some, kind of like, you know,
0: so but, many things happened in the nineties. I, I called the Bill Clinton administration conspiracy central in my bouquet oh, of history. God, horrible. And, I mean, so you had, you mentioned Ruby Ridge, you had Ruby Ridge, you had Waco and you had Oklahoma city, Vince Foster, all these things bang, 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 bang. You know, in the early right. years of the Clinton administration, uh, how do these things... I mean, we, we're told, the official story is that Timothy McVeigh was one of many people that was so upset over what happened at Waco, as a lot of people were, that he right. was compelled to do this. Uh, did you make any connections to to any of those other... You mentioned Ruby Ridge uh, and any of those other... Um, it, well, you
1: know, that, whole, that whole narrative was complete garbage. Um, we know he was working for the CIA and he was there. He was basically there as a place marker. He, he, they wanted him to get... Uh, uh, FaceTime on on the network news, even if it was for a, you know a passing five minutes, just so they could place him there. Um, <laughs> he, yeah, w- he was there for, what maybe for a total of three days, handing out bumper stickers and you know asking questions. But he wasn't uh, getting irate with the press or causing any problems with any of the local authorities or the the county sheriffs or anything like that. So that whole narrative is, is total garbage. Um, we do know, and in fact, even wrote a letter to his sister um by the way who's changed her name and her identity because yes
0: uh, yeah
1: Charles I, told me a backstory on that we somebody get
0: that. somebody gave her e- me her email and phone number but yeah she she's yeah. I, I can't <laughs> get a hold of her
1: <laughs> she changed her, her look with everything and uh, hair color and yeah it doesn't look anything like what she used to anyway um but he wrote a letter to his sister saying hey look i'm working for the CIA i'm smuggling drugs and i'm an assassin so it's it doesn't it yeah it doesn't make any sense and the waco thing is just total garbage we just it, it was laughable it, it was that bad it's there, there was nothing to support it um so uh we do know that he was given two medals of accommodation when he was held in custody at the federal courthouse in denver a lot of people don't realize he was his his room at the courthouse was basically it was a it was a mini jail uh, cell that they built. Literally within about a, a two minute walk of the courtroom, if that, because they don't want to risk the security t- transferring him between the jail and the courtrooms or the courthouse. So they built him a room in the courthouse adjacent to where the, the courtroom was during his trial. <clears throat> and he received two letters of commend medals of commendation from the US Army because he was on General Schwarzkopf's security detail. He was a 50 gal tank gunner. He could take you out, cut you in half, 800 yards downrange. That's how good of a shot he was. So... That and the fact that I mean, everything else he's doing, his whole backstory and what he was really doing compared to the official narrative is just it's bipolar. It's just it doesn't make any sense. There's no way that they could have crossed over. So we knew um, when we started peeling that apart in the first year and a half working on a film, he says, yeah, the FBI is just uh, they're running as fast as they can backwards to cover this thing up. And they're making themselves look like complete jackasses doing it because there's nothing to support their story
0: so what, what If what do you th-
1: not broke they'll hang themselves and that's exactly what they did
0: yeah well, what what do you you know because one of the strangest aspects of Oklahoma City to me uh, was Timothy Reve himself he uh, he didn't he didn't testify in his own defense he sat there stoically he kind of made kind of enigmatic remarks later criticized his attorney Stephen Jones rightly so I think mm-hmm. but um and then then after he's conveniently dead, these horrible comments come out about collateral damage from these two writers. I don't believe for a second he said all that stuff that, uh, that came out the posthumous.
1: The Buffalo, the Buffalo writers?
0: Yeah, where they were bragging about I mean, they, it was very convenient how he kept quiet the entire time, never testified strangely in my mind, and then suddenly this stuff comes out. What are your thoughts on that?
1: No, I I don't believe any a word that they say Um we we have reason to believe that one of them was actually working for, we're not quite sure. We couldn't peg it, but um, I mean, they had all the earmarks of working for intelligence or the, the military. And the other guy was, you know, you got the good cop, bad cop. <clears throat> but um, I I had a conversation with um, James Nichols, Terry Nichols' brother.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, before, uh, well, it was in the opening weeks of Terry's trial, the state trial. It was uh, the state of Oklahoma versus Terry Lynn Nichols a lot of people don't realize that McVeigh and Nichols on the federal side were charged for eight counts of murder because there was only eight federal employees killed. The state of Oklahoma spent, I believe, just shy of 3 million, 3.5 million to do the, um, the state trial. And he was tried on state murder charges for 160 counts of murder. Um, so anyway, I got to talk to, uh, James Nichols and he spoke with Terry's, uh, dad, uh, or, excuse me, Tim- Timothy McVeigh's dad. Mm-hmm. And, um, We don't know to this day, and this is another rabbit hole we can go down another time. But honestly, I don't think he was uh, he was executed. And one of one of the things that was really odd was that Tim's dad, and he told James this. He says, "Look, I tried to sue for the body. The warden at the Terre Haute death facility or the execution facility would not give him the body. They gave him an urn full of ashes. Well, it could have been somebody's dog or cat, for all we know." Yeah, yeah. So they were adamant about not turning the body over. Well, he had the legal right to the body. Mm-hmm. U.S. Bureau of Prisons didn't have the legal right to the body, but they were very quick on on doing the, um, uh, you know the, uh, you know uh, basically, yeah. It's it's unbelievable. Uh, so mm-hmm. it, it, that, that was odd, and then, of course that adds to a long list of okay, this isn't making any sense. Why would they do this? And so there's still a lot of unanswered questions about. And another thing is, and it, we did. Um, we had a former CIA uh, employee. I'm not going to name the gender or the name or anything, but this employee said, "When you work for the CIA, they don't hang you out to dry like that, and they certainly are going to execute you because you're going to hell of, have a hell of a time recruiting for the CIA." And people say, "Well, you screw up, or you know, they got you over the barrel, they're going to kill you." It's like, "All right, good luck recruiting for that." That's not the way the CIA operates. And McVeigh Winell was working for them for almost two years.
0: Yeah, I mean, and uh, you mentioned James Nichols. Now, James Nichols was outspoken. I, oh, he was real, Yeah, you
1: know,
0: yeah, but I mean, uh, but James James Nichols is deceased now, right? The brother that was outspoken.
1: I believe he. Yes, you are correct. He passed away not long ago. I yeah. found out through uh, a third channel. He said his his house was the second most famous White House in the world because it was in uh, Decker, Michigan. Uh, they were beet farmers up up upstate uh, northwest or northeast uh, Michigan. And he said, the um, local sheriff said that he shouldn't have been taken into custody. In fact, the morning that the building, the Murrah building was finally leveled and and hauled off, they mm-hmm. did all of the search and rescue and human remains and got what, for, what forensic evidence they could from the, uh, the crime scene. That morning, he was in his jail cell and he watched it live on CNN, the rest of the building being blown up. He said. Thirty minutes later, he's marched in front of the federal judge, African American female judge, was furious and basically told the U.S. marshals to uh, get him out of his uh, shackles and his uh, handcuffs and release him in custody, or else she, she was going to hold all of them in contempt and throw them in jail. And she she was furious on what how they uh, held him and uh, was he in custody for over 30 days?
0: Really? Uh, just because he just was Nichols' brother?
1: Correct. And they, they, they oh they just they went through top to bottom that house and just tore everything up. He said they even cut up his mattresses thinking he was hiding drugs or whatever in there. And they left it in shambles. He went back and the computers that he returned were in pieces. He said it looked like somebody went in there and just ransacked it with a baseball bat and a lead pipe. Uh, Some of the mirrors and the windows were broken. He said it was horrible. That's what he went back to after he was released.
0: Now what what about the 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 surviving brother Terry Nichols is still alive behind. Has, Correct. Has he talked? Has he, well, he talked? Talk, I mean, to me, he was really railroaded. I don't see what kind of evidence they got him on. But uh, has no. he talked to you or talked to anybody?
1: He, uh, Jane, Janie Coverdale, the African American grandmother that we interviewed in the film, um, I got to know her, uh, and I, I read some of his letters. They were pen pals for a while, uh, writing back and forth. And she did, uh, he, he did talk to Jesse Trinidue. We know that, and Jesse shared this with us. Jesse's also interviewed in the film. His brother, Kenny was brutally murdered at the Bureau prisons facility in Oklahoma City. Yes. A taken identity. But um, how it worked out was John Ashcroft was in office at the time. And there was a rule that the only visitors that Terry could have at the Supermax, and this is I think about an hour and a half Southwest of downtown Denver. The worst of the worst are out there. Kaczynski got the mob, a lot of uh, mob bosses and um, uh, several other, uh, Ramsey Youssef. Terry Nichols was framed. He, sh- he should not have been in prison uh, for more than eight years. And uh, it was just disgusting with, with the, what they did, uh, creating the evidence, manufacturing the evidence and, and creating the prosecution case around that. Uh, but he did tell uh, Jesse Trinidadu. He was able to because he even put Jesse as a attorney of record, and so Jesse was able to go in and visit with him. So Jesse talks to him, and they had to have an FBI minder. It's like something out of communist China. So I'm trying to adjust my earpiece here. Sure. Um, uh, and Jesse basically took notes. Uh, they wouldn't let him record anything, and there was an FBI minder sitting less than ten feet away from him in in the uh, the room where he was questioning Terry about what happened on the case. So Terry volunteered, and he was taken to Denver to speak with a grand jury and beyond closed doors. So Jesse, you know what they did? To, he says, you know what they did to Terry? They bring him back to the prison with two guards and the FBI agent in blue blazers and khaki slacks and a shirt and tie, and they walk him through the main yard, make it look Terry look like he was a narc. That's the worst thing you could do to a prisoner. You set him up to get shanked or stabbed or whatever. And so they have him in—he's um, in protective uh, solitary confinement right now, and he'll be there for the rest of his life without a chance of parole.
0: So, is he willing to? Uh, will they let him talk to anybody? Is he willing to talk to anybody?
1: Oh, well, he's willing to talk, but uh, Jesse says that um, Ashgar put a kibosh on that. He says, "No, that's not going to happen. You're not going to—we're not going to convene a grand jury. Shut the hell up, and we're going to put you back in prison."
0: <sighs> that's just incredible, because that's—I mean, he, 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 I don't know what he could. Could talk about to what extent he knows, but uh, that's just because a lot of people don't even realize that he was, uh, you know, given this draconian sentence, and really
1: he, he, he was set up. It, it, it was just flimsy. It was disgusting how they they set up the uh, manufactured the evidence. Um, and in fact, in his state trial, uh, it was within I, I believe the first two weeks Charles was down there with me. Uh, we drove down with two of the other guys on the bombing committee, George Wallace and BZ Lawton. and. This is, this is uh, unbelievable. Uh, this is gold here. Dr. Frederick Whitehurst, the head of the FBI crime lab, is yeah. testifying on behalf of Terry Nichols' defense. This is the guy that was asked within four hours of the bombing. Well, actually, yeah, within four hours. He says, oh, uh, by the way, you're not flying to Oklahoma City. We're going to get your understudy that has uh, substance abuse problems. We're going to have him be the, the case uh, lead from the FBI uh, field or the crime scene mm-hmm. office, crime lab. Uh, in Oklahoma City. And it's like, wow, that made no sense. Boom, huge red flag right there. So the defense calls in Dr. Frederick Whitehurst. Sandra Elliott, the lead um, attorney from the Oklahoma County District Attorney's Office, turned white as a sheet when Frederick Whitehurst got up on the stand. She rested her case. uh, Started proceedings at nine. I think she rested her case by 1030. Had no more questions for the rest of the day because Whitehurst just completely destroyed Oliver line of questioning from for Nichols and any other expert witness. He basically said, Oh, and they had a forensic expert from the University of New Mexico in Albuquerque at their uh, their law school. And these and she said that the way the FBI handled the evidence from the crime scene in Oklahoma City, she says, My daughter in seventh grade could do a better job at a science fair than these guys did, just completely destroyed their credibility. Then they that was after Frederick Whitehurst. So the the state prosecution. We knew then and there that their case against Nichols was, was completely destroyed. And there's nobody that could rebut. I mean, Whitehurst, he knew what was coming into the lab. He saw the stuff being flown in on private jet, with the FBI jets from Oklahoma City, and he said it was garbage. So anyway... There, you, can, you,
0: you can see on screen, that's the name I was looking for, Danielle Hunt. Thanks, Chris. Okay. That's the daycare yes. owner. That's the one that's, I think she's still alive, but man, Charles Key said, I think she was scared initially. Right. Any luck there?
1: Um, actually, her husband and I talked in 2014, because I was down here in, in Florida doing to take care of some family business. And I remember talking to him when I was on the road and he was willing to talk to us. And then he went silent. Like about a month after that, I, I never could uh, uh, contact him again. But I'm going to I'm gonna share something with you. And this is what we gave for Jesse Trinidad when he tried to sue for the tapes. Not a lot of people know this. My business partner, uh, I'm, I'm going to leave the name off the record here because I don't want him getting doxxed and, and harassed, actually applied for a job to be a security guard at the Murrah building a month before the bombing. This is in early March of 1995. He interviewed with Mr. Daniel Hunt's husband, who yes. was actually working for um, it, it. Basically, they had all of the monitors and they were working. It wasn't the U.S. Marshals. It was called the Marshals Office. It was a detachment. Uh, I, I believe it was some retired U.S. Marshals and some other uh, federal uh, law enforcement agents out of uh, their commanding officers out of Denver. But they were in charge of security for the Murr building. This my, my business partner. um basically said that he saw all the monitors the cameras are working fine and uh that he didn't get the job they they decided to go with somebody else at uh, ex-military and uh so anyway he didn't have enough experience under the belt but he testified on camera and this would have been in 2000 late 2014 where jesse had a service out of oklahoma city interview this individual as well as jenny coverdale and Don Browning, who we interviewed in the film, to verify where the cameras were. And, these, and Don seeing them lifting, uh, have these extended aluminum uh, ladders going up and taking the, the cameras down off the building. Um, and the, you know, the the prosecution says, well, we don't have tapes. Said, well, what were these cameras doing? And I have a, a witness here. This is they were working fine a month before the bombing. I mean, just completely destroying any efficacy or veracity of their story. Uh, so, yeah, that's, we know that it's, that uh, Mr. Hunt, he knew what was going on, but he didn't want to talk to us anymore and he kept his mouth shut. And I and think he, he's since passed away,
0: yes. Yeah, he, he has because we tried to look that in. Uh, Daniel Hunt just and, and uh, Charles Key, I think, told me that uh, they initially had uh, made contact with her, but she was scared off. And right. so many of these people really? were, uh, who's the the other uh, some other uh,
1: sorry, I can't read the text, it's a little too small. It's, it's... Yeah,
0: yeah, I know, I'm, I'm trying to uh. Chris had mentioned another name. Um, okay. Uh, oh, I can't think of who it was. Um, oh yeah, I know what it was. Uh, Vicky Beamer. Vicky Beamer. What do you know about Vicky Beamer?
1: God, you know. The, I, I apologize. Uh, we've no. I, some- I, I know.
0: So well, Vicky Beamer is the one that supposedly worked at the uh, the car rental place and saw of oh. the day with John Day number John Day okay. number two. Yeah.
1: Yeah. We weren't able to get a hold of her. Um, we did talk to somebody that worked at that shop and I believe it was a, uh, a male employee, but, uh, you yeah, know, Vicki, no luck there. She, uh, she ran and, and turned tail, by the way, I, I wanted to do this at the top of the, uh, interview. Um, I know you guys work with uh, David Knight and I, I want to give it a shout out to him. He's done yeah. an amazing job of helping us promote our, uh, third film or second film state of mind, psychology of control. And, uh, I, right. I have right here on on my wall. If I could read this real quick, um, sure. it says Free Mind Films is quickly becoming one of the finest independent documentary film production companies in the U.S. Their mission is to alter the information paradigm with hard hitting exposés of state crimes and cover ups. To that end, Free Mind Films will expose the truth, no matter where it takes them, and show it to the world. Aaron Dykes and uh, Kurt Nemo. And I believe Dave was just starting with InfoWars back then. But yeah, uh, those, shout out to Dave. Thank you for all of your support. Those are
0: old InfoWars names. I remember that. Yes.
1: <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I don't want to get... I know they separated their ways, but I just want to let Dave know that we appreciate him. And uh, he's done a wonderful job helping us out over the years.
0: Oh, yeah. He's been very good to us. And, uh, you know, he's... Uh, I'll have a new book coming out. I'll be, I'll be on there try, uh, promoting that. But we'll t- talk about... Uh, the other work you've done besides I I'm interested in uh, you sent me something about how the links between 9-11 and Oklahoma city and obviously Oklahoma city in many ways was kind of a prelude yes. to what we saw in Oklahoma city. Talk about the the, the connections there.
1: Well, that information came our way. Um, so we started the work in October of three. This information was coming out I know it was uh, Alex's uh, Rob Dews is producer now, but it was Kevin Smith was still his producer. So, we're talking 2006, 2007, 10-year anniversary of Terry's um, death was in May of 2006. And it was, uh, I believe, that, f- that December that we were getting information from the guys at Infowars. And he said, yeah, this guy from Oklahoma City keeps telling us he was a bartender there um, the weekend before 9-11. And he's giving us all this information. He sent us a cassette tape, but we really don't know what to do with it. He says, You guys are in Oklahoma City. Do you mind going and talking to him? It's like, Holy cow. So I went over to his house with one of my guys um, on the crew, and we we're kind of kidding around each other. He says, Yeah, Oklahoma City, 9 11 connection. We really don't know what we're going to walk into. He says, We'll be in and out in 45 minutes. Three and a half hours later, we walked out of the house just stunned. This guy had. Um, you know, I mean, affidavits, uh, he had written just detailed uh, accounting of what happened on the Thursday. And the um, they were cited at the memorial on Thursday, Friday night and Saturday night. Uh, they came into his establishment and picked a fight with some of the patrons. I mean, it goes right down the line. I'm going to this is the dossier. I'm going to show this. on. I'm, I'm not going to open it up. But this is how thick all of the information I got from him, including... Um, photocopies of the uh, credit card receipt that Muhammad Atta signed. And he says, yeah, he says, I've been bartending here for 18 years. And I'll I'll name the place. I mean, I have no compunction about doing that. It's called Graham's Country Western. I don't know if it's still there. We found out through other sources, a retired Oklahoma County sheriff and one guy that worked for the OSBI, State Bureau of Investigation, that it was was a prime money laundering operation for um, God only knows. It could have been drugs or, you know, faulty land uh, real estate deals whatever but they on purpose they lost money on a regular basis just to launder money um, and they were they were pushing some serious cash through that place anyway our our contact had nothing to do with that he was just I mean he was a bona fide bartender he'd been there 18 years bottled the liquor the payroll he knew it all and he said when he he saw Atta's check and I've got it or the receipt I've got it in these records five. There were five three four guys with him this is on the um the friday night before and they ordered they wanted doers he said well we don't serve doers they had chevis and they were at five dollars a shot three dollars a shot so there were um five guys the tab came to 15 bucks and he stiffed them. he didn't give this bartender my contact uh, a tip and he says oh yeah you remember people that stiff you you know it's just a weird thing that bartenders do And um, so he he kept that guy's face uh, because he says people that normally don't tip, they're smart asses and they uh, they're prone to get in trouble and uh, have a little too much drink and start fights. And then you got to jump the bar and get them out of there and work with, you know, it's just it's a pain in the ass. They come back the next night. And sure enough, he pulled a knife on one of the regular patrons, Mm -hmm. a guy and his girlfriend and then another couple they were with got kicked out of the bar and the new bar manager. I'd uh, only been there for six months, decided they Otto and his four friends could stick around. He said it made no sense. He says, by that point, he says, Yeah, you, you don't remember this. You don't forget this guy's face. So the following Tuesday, his face is flashed all over uh, network news and he says, What the hell? I served this guy drinks, you know, in Oklahoma City. And sure enough, that's when he started putting the whole narrative together.
0: Well, that, that sounds very much like the story Danielle Hunt told of someone saying he was McVeigh visiting the daycare center, remember that before, and asking and making provocative comments. Did he say something like, everybody will know who I am, and he, he spelled his name and everything out? Uh, that's And, of course, we saw kind of like that with Lee Harvey Oswald, where somebody was impersonating him, but they were trying to get that name out there constantly.
1: It, yeah, they, they were the braggadocio, or they've they been ingratiated with somebody higher up, and, you know, their, their handler. Well, we know McVeigh's handler was Larry Potts, and that's what Terry Nichols just flat out said that he was number two under Louis Free of the FBI. Yeah,
0: in
1: sure. fact, in back going back to the state trial, I mean, to jump around here, I mean, I'll work with your whatever train of thought you want to go with here. Sure, um, but in the state trial, this is what made the, the presiding judge, Stephen Taylor, was furious when John Ashcroft and I believe um, Eric Holder had something to do with this, would not let the defense counsel, called Larry Potts as a hostile witness to testify at the, the trial. And Stephen Taylor, who later told me, oddly enough, he, he lived in the, uh, the apartment uh, complex, Regency Towers, uh, across the street in Caddy Corner from where the Mary Burley once stood. And I'd see him jogging by my apartment all the time, uh, north of downtown Oklahoma City. And so I stopped him at the post office there, uh, chatted a few minutes, and I asked him about the Larry Potts thing and we could tell his radar went up and he says, yeah. He says, nobody comes in my courtroom regardless and telling me who I can and cannot have as a witness in my courtroom. He says, I'm, I'm the final say so on that. That's just utter disrespect when you do that to a judge, regardless of a hostile witness or whatever. And the temerity and the arrogance of the, the Justice Department in basically telling the judge to basically F off. He says, no, we're not letting this guy come in your courtroom. And uh, he, he, he wrote a letter, fired off a letter to Ashcroft and it took him about three days to cool down and realize who he was dealing with. That's how arrogant these bastards were.
0: Well, absolutely. And, uh, thanks to Swampy McGee, he's uh, posted, you can see up on the, well, you might not be able to see on the screen now. It's, uh, it sounds like what a press release for your film. A noble lie is the culmination of years of research and documentation conducted by independent journalists, scholars, and ordinary citizens, often risking their personal safety and sanity. Certainly, uh a Thank great a, a great accomplishment. It. yeah that was that was nice thanks for finding that. That's the, um chris wants to know uh what is he uh chris always finds there's connections everywhere in these things is oh, yeah. the get, does the guest know about the Chandra Levy and Gary Condit connection to McVeigh's execution you're not going to believe this <laughs>
1: unbelievable i uh, i was i was speaking in fact charles and i were at this it was a a speaking event in July of 2005, June or July of 2005, at American University in Washington D.C. By any anybody that isn't aware of this, that is a that's the crucible, that is the the proving grounds, and training grounds for CIA young assets for the CIA. Anyway, we just happened to we were asked to to speak there uh, at a it was a 9/11 uh, Truth Convergence, uh, one of the many stops they had that year around the country, and we spoke. Um, at one of the the small um, conference rooms uh, about the Oklahoma City case. On the way back to the airport to catch my flight back to Oklahoma City after everything had done, the taxi cab driver, I told him where I was there and the movie I was working on, African-American gentleman turns around and we're at a stoplight and he says, do you know the connection between Chandra Levy and Oklahoma City and Gary Condit? And I just thought, what the hell are you talking about? And he walked me through it. So that's what, he says, yeah, there, there's we don't, we never really had a chance to dig into that whole thing, but God only knows that poor gal what she got herself into. And, uh, uh you know, it's just, um, she it's, was it's just something. a of thieves out there once you're inside the belt. Yeah, what well, she
0: was, she, I think she was missing for about a year and then they found her body right where they would searched many times before, right. which is, uh, it's, I hate to laugh about it, but and you're, you're. Colleague Mary Ellen Moore uh is here saying Tim McVeigh of Fed or CIA. I think you've said you thought he was CIA, right?
1: Uh yeah, yeah. It's I mean and why why he he was he was good enough to be on Schwarzkopf security detail, the supreme allied commander of all of all forces in the first wow. Persian Gulf War. It just doesn't add up, guys. This is not yeah. some lone nut handing out bumper stickers at right. Wake two years before. Give me a freaking break. <laughs> what I, White, White,
0: yeah. White Wolf says that uh, A Noble eye is on YouTube. That's amazing that it's on there.
1: Well, we, which we there are copies on there. We're trying to take it down. Now, The YouTube Red, which is a pay-per-view channel, our agent, uh, our film agent is trying to make inroads with that. So that may or may not be part of that. But uh, every couple of weeks, I have to take down the pirated copies.
0: Okay, and Mary Ellen, she mentioned this to me before. So we're going to cover. I mean, it's it's we're almost at the top of the hour, but I mean, we with this is a two hour show. Can you, can you go for the two hours? I'd love to have you if you can.
1: Yeah, I don't want to. I don't want to take up time for your other guests.
0: Yeah, no, no, I, I don't have anybody else. And you know, a lot of times I'll just rant. But this is great because you know so much about all these things. Mary Ellen says, uh, "Have Chris talk about his knowledge of TWA eight hundred when he's finished with OKC." So that's another very interesting case.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah, I just I, I printed out the official um, dossier on that from uh, Wikipedia, and I just—I mean, there's so many holes in their nar- their narrative. It's just—it's really—it's sad. Um, it's like we're dealing with rank amateurs at Wikipedia, but we know who Wikipedia is, and yeah, it's so you it's-
0: had you had, and uh, it's interesting now with Robert F. Kennedy Jr. entering the the race for president. The other uh, there's a Kennedy connection there, Pierre Salinger, who. Ruined his career. This guy had been having a gravy job for years in in uh, Paris as ABC correspondent in Paris, and he comes on and and starts promoting the the missile theory. Right, and boy, they just lambasted him, and he he, he had no more good press after that. That's, that's one you of know, the things I remember.
1: you did it. He he really uh, he stuck his neck out, and I have to commend him for that. Um, the fact that that was that was basically the case that I was told to walk away from it a uh, family member at the time was working for the airline and her job was threatened and uh in fact it was the employees union out of uh, St Louis Lambert field was the uh the hub the, the headquarters for uh TWA for what 70 some years and um, that's where Charles Lundberg, uh is is playing is is displayed there at, at Lambert international uh anyway um uh, But when her job was threatened, the Employees Union, who was actually the International Association of Machinists, was the Employees Union at the time. They were huge contributors to the Clinton re-election campaign. So you could see what direction those arrows are pointing in. They did not want the truth to come out because it happened during the the Clinton administration. And um, it was was the only time I got called in in a closed-door meeting to a boss that I didn't work for, and he said, "Look, this is I don't have a choice." He says, "I'm going to have to fire so and so if you don't walk away from this," and it, it was kind of was pissed off. I was bummed out for two and a half months, and it was toward the end of that, coming out of that that funk, that I was contacted by Jerry Longspaw, who's no longer living uh, in Fort Worth, and he says, "Look, take a look at the Oklahoma City case." So there was there was some energy pointing in the right direction there, just odd. Uh, so, you, you, you know, you, you close one door and you open up three more, as they say. So,
0: Absolutely. And So uh, Chris Chris said he actually talked to McFay's sister. I haven't heard that before. That's pretty amazing. Oh, okay. There's there's a connection between uh, Andre Strassmeyer was involved with the Murrah Building. We know that. And also Logan Airport in Boston on uh, 9-11. I didn't know that. I,
1: I'm not sure what the connection was with Logan. I, I know Strassmeyer's dad was a former chief of staff with Helmut Kohl. His dad was pretty much the personal assistant to Helmut Kohl uh, who ended up, Helmut Kohl had some uh, corruption, but it's neither here nor there. It had nothing new with Strassmeyer's dad. Um, yeah, but um we found out through a source in, in Fort Worth, Texas. It was the uh, Texas, it was a militia. It was called the Texas Light Brigade. These guys ran around on motorcycles and motocross bikes and stuff. And, you know, they were, they played gu- cops and robbers, so to speak, and, you know, had their guns in mm-hmm. there. I'm not denigrating what they were doing, but they, they kind of they got in with uh, Strassmeyer and they called him out when they saw him punching the security code in the back door of the federal courthouse in downtown Fort Worth in the middle mm-hmm. of the night. And this is look, we're not going to guarantee your safety anymore. You got 24 hours to get the hell out of Dodge or else you may come out missing. And that, that was basically told him to get the hell out. They, they knew he was a fed when he was doing that. Who has this? who has the security code to the back door of the federal courthouse in downtown? (laughs) Give me a break. So, yeah. And then he ends up showing up in LOM city and and making himself known there. And so. Uh,
0: Yeah. White Wolf says the cremation without authorization of Ken, that is contrary to statute in most cases. Yeah. I mean, in most States. Uh, Yeah. I, I I did not know that. And I'm surprised that it sounds like McVeigh's dad at least was willing to. Oh, that was what he said to James Nichols there, right? You said.
1: Correct. He wanted to give him a proper burial. I mean, it's, I mean, but God, it's his, it's his dad, you know? Yeah. So he had every right to the body. Um, So by the way, uh, we found out also, um, James said that there were three hearses that pulled out of the death chamber that day just to throw off the media. Nobody knew.
0: But then again,
1: if it was a hearse, why was his body cremated? It's just like, okay. And the dad was expecting to have a body in one of the hearses. Well, they all came up empty. There were empty caskets in there. And then he was handed an urn with his ashes. So.
0: My friend uh Vince Agnelli uh, asked if you, you did you ever talk to Brett Macy, son of the late Bob Macy, district no. attorney?
1: I had no idea that he even had a son, but uh, yeah, Bob Macy, uh, you know, God rest his soul, he he uh, it was either dementia or Alzheimer's in his final days. So even if we were to get a hold of him, we wouldn't have got a straight answer out of him. So,
0: yeah, that's, uh, see if we have any other, but yeah, do, you, if you, uh, I mean, what, what work have you, 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 you talked about David Knight promoting, talk about the film that you're this is your third, what other films besides the noble eye, uh, are From out my, there that, that you're on our website,
1: uh, freemindfilms.com. We released uh state of mind psychology of control in, um, July of 2013. And, uh, we had a, uh, yeah, it was a big rollout. My oh, God, uh, we sold 10,000 regular format DVDs and 5,000 Blu-ray. They were gone within four days at InfoWars. I mean, and David was a huge part of that promotion. Um, and then we released that. That was very—you could tell the production quality from our first film to the second film was quantum leaps. We rolled 90 over 95 percent of our profit we made on the first film into the second film because we knew we were on a, on a, on a moving in the right direction. Had a good crew and. Good researchers, and then uh, the third film was released actually uh, two days after I moved down here in the first week of June of uh, 2015. Uh, and that's called Shadow Ring. So, State of Mind Psychology Control is basically uh, we interviewed, um, I think we had 23 on the wish list. I think we were able to interview 18 or 19 of them. I don't believe all of them made the final cut, though. These are peer reviewed authors, and uh. uh experts on psychology, literally from the day you're born till the day you die, whether it be education, media, um, nutrition, um, indoctrination on television or, you know, uh, scholastic studies or kindergarten, whatever. We go through the whole gamut of of the history of how people are manipulated. And all of our films were intended to be not the final say, but a primer, just a a good stepping stone to to give you a good set of um, building blocks to work from and make your own decision you do your own research from that and at least you have something bona fide and objective to look at that isn't being shoved down your throat and you know it's it's not a, bu- a bunch of garbage Th- these are experts that are well-rounded and, and well respected uh, within the field of, of uh, their work Sh- uh, Shadow Ring is a microcosm of uh, uh, world history from right after the spanish-American war to just before the 9/11. Uh, or excuse me, the first Persian Gulf War. uh, We we said, uh, look, history isn't just by chance. There is a deliberate and methodical uh, path that is followed by, as we know now, the World Economic Forum and the likes of these Bond villains, you know, uh, Klaus Schwab and his ilk. And at the time, uh, we go over the history of what Henry Kissinger and uh, Zbigniew Brzezinski and all of those guys were doing. They're the predecessors uh you know to fauci and and klaus schwab and um all these other complete maniacs that think that they uh can rule the world so um i've worked on a fourth project astro which is a sci-fi film in fact i've got the uh cover in the uh, dvd here we did a behind the scenes making of documentary the director of that film asked me to come on board Uh, separate from Fremont films because he liked the way our style we did on our first three films. And he says, I want you to do a behind the scenes making of interview, the crew, um, the, uh, the cast, the the stunt people, the the folks that brought the money people that were in here stayed in New Mexico, man, they rolled out the red carpet. Their whole film commission did a wonderful job for us there. Uh, In fact, some of the same people that helped with the the popular series breaking bad, um, which I think was just coming on. No, they were in their third or fourth season. We crossed over with some of those folks that were helping with the funding on that. So it was nice to meet those, You know, see how that was going on behind the scenes. Um, and then um, I was very honored. Uh, Mary Ellen was involved with the, the first episode of COVID Land. Uh, she helped, uh, she was executive, executive producer on that. So I got our graphic artist, and Paul Wittenberger did an amazing job. Uh, there were three episodes released. Paul has been with us since the early days He's helped us on so
0: many things. COVID land that that was uh, that was Infowars, right? Uh, well, they they helped promote it, but it was a separate. It was okay. you, Paul. I remember them showing. I think that's they showed correct. it on there,
1: right? Yeah, correct. They they, uh, they promoted the first three episodes on there, and um, I stepped I forward with our graphic artist and they helped Paul redo the um, the artwork for the, the the movie film for the first episode. So, in that limited capacity, I was proud to be affiliated. And, and
0: Mary Ellen Moore was involved in that.
1: Correct. She That's was a right. producer on one of the executive producers on that.
0: Well, she's been so supportive of me. I I, I need to look at more of what she's doing. <laughs> That's Hurry fantastic. So we'll talk a little bit because I mean, uh, my my next book coming out is going to be called Masking the Truth. It's going to be all about COVID and, and you know what I hope is the the real story of it. But uh, I call it the greatest psyop of all time. Oh, sure. And uh, you know this is uh, what. So what? What? Uh, and I think COVID land was you know, what I remember watching it on Infowars and was impressed with it. But uh, there's so much out there. I mean, I, the the world was shut down, and uh, it's mm. it's. I, I became so disillusioned over this because I I never thought we were outnumbered to the degree that we are. The fact that so many people bought this without questioning and did so many silly things like putting a mask on to enter a restaurant but when they got to the table you could take it off i mean just yeah i'm saying you know why, why are you just, just obeying everything or why aren't you questioning this i, 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 wonder, I remember
1: remember the uh, the press conference they had it was that march 13th it was that friday uh, thursday the 13th <clears throat> donald trump's up there with uh dr burks the, the lady the infamous uh scarf lady and they had mike pence and dr fauci there flanking him and i told my dad my dad was. You know, he's in his mid-80s. And I says, Dad, mark my words. I is Doc, this is Anthony Fauci. He's a snake in the grass. He <laughs> said, this guy, uh, I, I told him, I said, this guy completely ruined any credibility of, of helping anybody with the uh, the AIDS epidemic back in the early 80s. Yes. And withheld, um, withheld treatment, which ended up being lethal anyway. Yeah. Uh, for two and a half years so he could secure patents on the um, the vaccines and stuff. The alleged cure for the whole thing anyway. And he ended up killing more people. I said, this is the last guy that Trump should have standing behind him. He should be ushered out of the White House right now. I was furious. I hit the roof. And my dad says, oh, calm down. And, I, and six months later, he says, you were right. I am Dad, I'm, it's just it's horrible. Um, so, yeah, the whole shutdown. And I'm glad our governor here in Florida could see through it. And I found out through uh, some people that were on his medical advisory board that uh, he contacted um, the health ministries of believe three Scandinavian countries, Malaysia and Japan. And there was a sixth country. I can't remember right now. And he literally got on the phone with them. Their their lead medical advisors in these countries and said, hey, what's working for you people? You're not shutting down. And he basically cherry picked what was working best for them and tried to implement it on a state level. Fired our uh, surgeon general. And by the way, not every state has a surgeon general. I wasn't aware of that. Um, but Florida is one of one of them to do, and much to Governor DeSantis's credit, um, he hired Doctor Ladapo, who was actually one of the on the first group of the um, the doctors that wanted to speak out and were ostracized on social media. Yeah, that's one of the doctors. He's our Surgeon General for uh, the state of Florida, and he's the one that's come out and said, "All yes. right, we're not going to force these vaccines on you."
0: Yes, and, he's been he's probably uh, been less most vocal. Uh... Certainly, the most vocal Surgeon General on the subject. But uh, so, if we can watch a pattern and see, like something like Oklahoma City, obviously it's an elaborate cover-up. There's lots there, witnesses afraid, body count, all that stuff. 9/11, much grander scale, correct? Way more deaths, way more witnesses, and then we get to you know all the way get to where we are now with COVID. You're talking about something, I, I call it the greatest sci-up in the history of the world. But there's so many aspects to it. You have uh, uh, a warp speed vaccine that, I, I, I don't know, it may, have, it may have already killed millions. We don't the death rate, went up 40%. I mean, there's yeah. so much there. How do we even cover a story like that?
1: Well, it, you know, it, and I'm, I'm kind of a numbers and engineering guy. And I, I think that's, it, it helped me out early on with the Oklahoma City case. But what I, one of the guys, in addition to Robert F. Kennedy and, and Dr. McCullough, Edward Dowd in his book Causes Unknown, mm-hmm. if you really want to shake it down and see what, where the rubber meets the road and the numbers, um, and, and he's got his Substack uh, articles, just brilliant guy,
0: mm-hmm.
1: working with a guy I believe out of Portugal and another one um, here in the US. There's three of them that have a financial consulting company, just absolutely brilliant. And they break this down just by the numbers. And you could see not only did Big Pharma and Fauci and um, the head of NIH, my God, those guys, they didn't violate one or two of the Nuremberg statues. They did a wind and just completely blew right by every one of them, completely <laughs> ignored them. Those guys should be hanging from the wrong end of a rope right now. now I'm not being facetious here, but all things considered, if, if it's equal, what happened in Nuremberg in 1947 and what these guys did, there's no doubt they should be put on trial. No, absolutely absolutely horrendous
0: so no-
1: yeah they, i mean it's just it, it is so blatant and so in your face they don't even want to hide it anymore which is even more scary this you know you're dealing with complete maniacs and sociopaths when they really don't even care what you think
0: that's no, not i I've, I've had a lot of these doctors on my show i had peter McCullough on and he uh he said uh you know once once this they caught whatever the official number of deaths were from the vaccine in the first month, and we know it was very conservative, obviously, but it oh, was yeah. still it was still more than all the other vaccines in the history of the world combined. And he said, you know, if that if that a fraction of that with any other vaccine, it would have been pulled off the market. He said right. they, they did nothing. In fact, they covered it up. And he said, you know, we're talking about the forty percent increase in deaths. Said you there's only one thing that has entered the scene that is is can possibly be responsible that's that's new and that's the vaccine because even if you take their absurd inflated numbers for covid deaths it still doesn't come close to uh, uh, being responsible for a 40 percent increase in deaths right. unprecedented thing but why do you think people are so i mean are, they're so vested and obviously there's there's families like mine there's fractures in families over this and people are so emotionally vested you just think they're just never want to admit that that the so-called conspiracy theorists were right?
1: Well, they, they they don't want to admit that they were duped. I mean, this is a, uh, we're talking about, you know, it's way beyond Stockholm Syndrome. It's like a five-year-old having adoration for an adult figure and they, they that can do no wrong. It's like, no, he, he killed your mom, he killed your grandmother, he killed your sister. When they have no compunction, shoot your dog. I mean, that's how right. cruel cool these people are.
0: Right. It's no. exactly right. get and I want I want to get to uh, back to Oklahoma City. Harlan Stonewall said, uh, "Did you know that McVeigh went to Arizona to visit Bill Cooper, which is a favorite of a lot of people, including Chris Graves and my producer Tony? Did you know that?"
1: I did not. I uh, you know I, I I really didn't get into the uh, the Arizona part of it, other than um, Michael Fortier and um, Kingman, Arizona. By the way, uh, uh, Napolitano I think was with the State of Arizona back then. The not Judge Napolitano, but the, the former... Uh,
0: Janet Napolitano, yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah she's uh, she's another snake in the grass. Just weird co- connections uh, to what she did there and um, trumping that whole thing up with McVeigh. McVeigh was set up. I mean, there's no doubt about it. And I like I said, I don't think he's dead. I, I think he's alive and he's under witness protection uh, because you don't do that to CIA assets. It's just not the way they roll. They never
0: have, yeah. and that's of course. Then you, you you end up getting way down the rabbit hole. But then you have something like anecdotal evidence of his own father, uh, who's not willing to talk. Really, I can testify to uh, you know mentioning something like that. I mean, that's kind of a. I you, you wonder if these families, and again, I don't know because they won't. Most of them don't talk. If these people they know the truth. They're just terrified behind closed doors. Are, are they, are there,
1: well, let me, let me share something with you guys. And a lot of folks aren't aware of this about two months after I moved to Oklahoma city, I met with Hoppy Heidelberg, who was, he wasn't the grand jury foreperson. He was one of the members of it. The yes. They impaneled that grand jury in January of 95. And um, they were for 10 months at the end of October, they finished their, Assignment, and they had another grand jury panel. So the bombing happens in April, and Hoppy was a member of Mensa, and you know you got to be pretty sharp <laughs> to be a member of Mensa. Mm-hmm. But he didn't brag about it. He just says, "Hey, you know, I I it was a privilege of being selected by Mensa." Anyway, I'm sitting at his kitchen table, and he had a. This guy was a multi-million dollar horse breeder. He said, within two months after the bombing, when they were uh, starting to get the. um, information coming in. He says it wasn't adding up. And um, that first week of October is when he wrote a two-page letter to Judge, I want to say David Russell, if I'm not mistaken. Um, And uh, he asked him for 22 different things, including shop drawings, experts to be brought before the grand jury, uh, demolition experts, um, you know, uh, FBI agents, what they saw. They wanted a good, a well-rounded view of what, not only on the physical side, but the eyewitness side, what happened and during search and rescue and search and recovery. None of that was granted. The judge had three choices, either to grant the the, um, the requests and make arrangements to have these people come in, to uh, say no and give reasons why, or to dismiss um, Mr. Heidelberg without any reason. And he chose option number three. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Well, Hoppy told me he continued to ask questions and he kept popping his mouth off on TV, not being a jerk, but say, hey, you know, we need the answers here. I'm, a, I'm part of the grand jury. I'm, I'm no longer on there, but this is what I discovered. Well, I didn't sit too well with the authorities. So I'm sitting there at his, his, uh, his uh, kitchen table. This is late February of 2003. And I shared a pot of coffee, and he says, he says about, uh, it would have been in December of, of 1995, he got a visit from a lawyer. Came in with a cowboy hat. He says, I'll never forget. He had a nice sport coat, pressed shirt, pressed jeans, nice boots. He said, this, "This is a high dollar cowboy. This isn't somebody that comes off the ranch, you know, working a couple of uh, a day or so in the field." And uh, he was sent there by who we now, what we now term as the deep state. This is beyond the CIA and beyond the Oklahoma State Highway Patrol or anybody or the governor's office, and basically gave Hoppy a choice to either keep his mouth shut, or he was showing him pictures of where his grandkids went to to school. This is out of state now where his his kids were going to school, grandkids. And they knew where his wife worked at the bank, uh, not far from where Hoppy's ranch was. And uh, basically even the ultimatum that uh, if he didn't keep his mouth shut, things would start to happen within 24 hours. Wow. Absolutely disgusting. In fact, I I was sitting there and I was almost in tears and Hoppy was choking back. He says, yeah, can you imagine? And I says, Hoppy, I "I can't even imagine having somebody come in. and uh, you know he, he he was basically the good cop and the bad cop all in one he says look i uh, feel for you i know what you're trying to do but he says i don't have a choice i was sent here to deliver a message and you have to make a decision within the next 24 hours what you're going to do that's how disrespectful they have no regard for the sanctity of human life they mm-hmm. they will kill your grandkids or your wife or your children without any reservation at all just to make sure that you're shut up this is coming from a member of the grand jury that had the at least the wherewithal and a level head to say, "Hey, you know what? Something's horribly wrong here. These people are being lied to. We deserve to know the truth, and this is what I need to know." And they just wanted to shove them down a hole.
0: Well, Heidelberg was, you know, very unusual. So he really did want to get to the truth, and he ended up. I know he was on Alex Jones, and we all knew about him. But uh, I've you mentioned earlier about uh, some grandmother that was corresponding pen pals with Terry Nichols. I I reached out to Edie, the former Edie Smith. Correct. And uh, her mother, uh, who wouldn't, she, I don't know, she wouldn't really talk to me. She just said, I'm doing my own book. And I don't know. I said, okay, whatever, because I wanted to have her on my I'll shelf. she got that book
1: here on my shelf, actually, yeah.
0: Okay, yeah. And she, uh, she said she's been pen pals with Terry Nichols. So is he corresponding with a lot of people? Yeah, hey, uh, just the two of them,
1: from what I understood. Uh, Janie and uh, Edie's mom were, in fact, bear with me here. Uh, I'm going to grab the book here real quick. I'll be right back.
0: Sure, sure. Take your time. Let's just see what else we have here. Uh, I'm going to ask him about Ben Parton.
1: To Randall Heather. It was, um, yeah, here it is. After Oklahoma City. um, Shocking Truths. Kathy Sanders, that's it.
0: Yes, Kathy Sanders, yeah.
1: Yeah, Kathy Sanders, she's done a a great job. Um, Kathy is a a very talented artist, and uh, last night... She was living in Little Rock, and is just a just a very level-headed, wonderful uh, individual. And boy, she had been through a lot. Her her uh, husband at the time of the bombing, Glenn Wilburn,
0: yes, yes, um,
1: was asking a lot of questions, and it was horrible. He died of uh, very aggressive, fast uh, cancer. Yes, um, Charles had uh, again another oddity. They had a multi County grand jury that was impaneled to question Charles and. Some of the guys on the committee about what they were trying to do, and Charles told me the morning that he was getting ready to go to the grand jury, he had to be there at a certain time at court. <clears throat> he gets a call from Kathy, six o'clock that morning, and uh, Charles standing there shaving at the the bathroom sink, and uh, Kathy says Glenn passed away, and it was uh, two or three days later. Charles is one of the pallbearers in her husband's uh, funeral, and they the procession, um, the limos and the, uh, the hearses drove the three blocks around the bombing site before they proceeded on to the uh, cemetery because everybody knew that he was asking questions.
0: Yes, he
1: was. His dining room table was pretty much grand central for uh, the uh, cassette tapes of all the recordings and the the audio affidavits of the the parents. And then uh, Charles being a member of the state legislature, he was in District 90 on the west side of Oklahoma City and uh, his constituents are saying, look, we're getting one story from Oklahoma City Police, something else from the Highway Patrol. We don't know what the hell to believe from the FBI because what they're telling us is making absolutely no sense. And the governor's office has given us a cold shoulder. He says, as a state legislator, would you mind spearheading an independent investigation? That was basically the genesis, the start of what would be the, um, uh, the, the final report, the book that uh, was the, the basis for our film and um yeah it's amazing what those guys went through well
0: and it's it's as always there wasn't a single professional journalist that was doing any reporting on this you had uh glenn wilburn who was the uh grandfather of those twins and and interesting for those who don't know human interest story edie smith was kind of a one of the early stars of this because she lost they would show footage of the twins that were lost in the daycare center, and they milked that for all it was worth emotionally the networks did and once they tore down the crime scene, and that's what they did when they cart when they tore, tore it down and carted it away, like they would uh, <clears throat> come to do at many other crime scenes uh, in, in the future. Uh, they, I think, it was a CNN reporter had Edie Smith on, and they they let her gave her a loaded question like, "How do you feel like you there's closure now that it's down?" And she she said something like, "I just want to know why the the BATF agents' children." Uh, children weren't in the building at day or something and they just cut away from it and to my knowledge she was never interviewed again but her uh, stepfather grant Glen was one of those in- investigating as was JD cash was another guy that did some early uh, some right. work early on and uh and obviously you know later people like you but w- were there any professional reporters I mean the same thing you could say about JFK 911 anything they're just absent they're, they they that none of them do any investigative reporting on this stuff there, was a, there was a
1: reporter from the local um, PBS affiliate. In fact, I saw him. The State Historical Society was amazing. I was able to see the footage literally when the story broke that morning on the local affiliates. They 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 basically preempted Mori Povich and which started okay. at the top of the hour. The bombing happens at 902 and all of a sudden you see this building crescendo of... They had the B team, the weather guy and the B team um, it was some young gal and um, doing uh, basically like would do commercial break news. But everybody else was downtown at the convention center covering the prayer breakfast with the governor and the uh, the um, <coughs> city aldermen and the pastors and the rabbis. And oddly enough, they're nine blocks from the bombing site. All of their satellite trucks and the camera crews and the string of photographers rushed up, literally left their prayer breakfast. <coughs> Excuse me, it wasn't supposed to wrap till about 9.30 that morning. The bombing happens at 9.02. And it's like, what the hell was that? So long story short, um, this PBS um, reporter actually tried to do a good job. Come to find out he had a nervous breakdown and was basically on sabbatical for about two and a half months. And we got to talk to him. He didn't want to come on camera, but he was the only guy that was willing to ask objective questions. Um, and then this, oh, by the way, this is for another interview, but Devin Skillian, who was with Channel 4, he was the PM anchor was woke up out of bed from the explosions. And he says, oh yeah, he felt more than one explosion. It was basically a boom, boom. You know, it wasn't, uh, there there were two things going off. Woke him up out of bed, hops in the shower. His neighbor, I think he told me his neighbor was a county uh, uh, deputy, a sheriff's deputy. And he hops in his neighbor's car and they race down to the TV studio. He got in there, he said it was the only time that the AM and the PM anchor were breaking the news together. And really those guys aren't in studio like that. And he says by, um, by 10 o'clock, 1015, he says, oh yeah, they were in full tilt on, on trying to unravel the story. And and uh, so to answer your question, he wanted to break the, the good news, or not the good news, but the, the authentic news, what was going on. And he, and he told me, and this is in a, a lunch interview I had with him in uh, Detroit, he ended up going from Oklahoma City to Channel 4 in Detroit, an BC affiliate up there. And he said it was the oddest thing. He says the stuff we're getting from the governor's office and the Oklahoma City police and the county sheriff and the motorcycle squad, this right off, you know, I mean, they're trying to get it off the radio bands, type it down and, and get it out. And he says the FBI is coming in with the whole narrative and slow but sure. He says the FBI snuffed out everything else. So in a roundabout way, I'm answering your question. They wanted to get the news out, but they were basically told not to. And Melissa Quinzing, yeah. the news director, uh, two years later told the FBI to go F themselves and she quit. She didn't want to have her contract renewed. So, yeah. yeah. So anyway, that's.
0: What about, we haven't, uh, and speaking of uh, explosions, uh, General Ben Parton, this guy is a general, and uh, he is a, a top explosive expert. He couldn't get on other than Alex Jones. And so I was like, hey, he, he couldn't get on the mainstream media. Did you guys interview him?
1: Oh yeah. Oh yeah. He's in the film. We were yeah. very honored um, to get him on. He had, uh, he was a one-star general in charge of the Pentagon Armament Lab. and Get this. So this guy's literally got billions of dollars at his disposal. And there's a crossover to TWA real quick. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I, I got to meet with him in October of 2003. I flew to his house. It was, um, an overnight and I uh, was in town for about maybe 36 hours. We go have dinner at Fort Belvoir at the officer's club outside of uh, not far from the Pentagon. Yes. Him and his wife and, and my, myself, <clears throat> great food. Where <clears throat> do they get a heck of a discount there? <clears throat> great service. Excuse me. I mean, to. Um, anyway, we're on our way back. It's about 10 30 at night. His wife's asleep in the back and he's driving. So, we're going south on the, uh, the beltway past the Pentagon, and he's looking off to his left. And he says, Chris, he says, for every window, light that's on at the Pentagon, he says, somebody's trying to save this country and somebody's trying to take it down. There's always that balance of good and evil.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: We got back to his house and we're up till about 2.30 in the morning at his dining room table. And it's like sitting across the table from Einstein. And I kid you not. I mean, I, I studied civil engineering. I knew physics. I knew uh, chemistry, advanced physics quantum physics to a level that it was proficient. You know, I got decent grades in college. This guy blew me out of the water. And in seven note pages, the long legal pads, I'll never forget this, on both sides. And I've got them in our archives in Oklahoma City. He scribbled down formulas and what was what happened in Oklahoma City. And it's, he says, this is the, the type of um, what they call after action reports that I would write out in, rough, in longhand, he told me when they would blow up small cities in the middle of the White Sands Missile Range in New Mexico, he would fly out there on working with the Pentagon in the armament lab and say, okay, if you're going to launch this particular ordinance or use this from a tank or a plane or a surface-to-air or whatever, this is what's going to happen. And they needed to know the extent of the damage. To minimize civilian casualties, you had to go you know, within the rules of engagement at war. You're not just going to go out kill indiscriminately. You'll be... Hold into court and sent to prison if not executed, if you do that. So he knew the parameters to work with. Anyway, he's, he, I was just in awe. I'm just watching him write this stuff out. And uh, so we're done with that. And it was uh, getting pretty late. I had to catch a flight the next morning back to Oklahoma City from Reagan International. And he says, oh, by the way, have you ever studied the TWA 800 case? And I says, as a matter of fact, I did for two and a half years. I said that was pretty much what I had to walk away from before I started Oklahoma City, and he looked at me. You know, we had a couple of beers, our eyes are bloodshot, we tired. And he looked at me, and he, he kind of pointed to me. He says, "I designed the ordinance that took that plane down." I nearly fell out of my chair.
0: This is Ben Parton that said that. Ben
1: Parton, yes. Wow.
0: Okay, I didn't know that. Wow.
1: And then he, he proceeded for the next hour, and I remember I didn't get to bed till like four thirty. Just my mind is just like racing. I thought, "Holy crap!" You know, all the work I'd done on that. I knew there was other ordinance that was used. It wasn't a center fuel tank explosion. He said, same ordinance, different paint job. They, they designed the same ordnance for the Navy as well as the Air Force. They just painted them different. And he said, it was definitely a surface to air missile. And there were two of them. He says, that, you know what it was?
0: Hmm.
1: This is coming from the guy that designed the damn thing. Yeah, yeah. It's called the backstop missile system. They launched within eight seconds of each other. He says, that ordnance came from a submarine that was uh, shooting down drones. Remember, this is 8.30 at night. It was twilight, right. the, the, uh, the horizon. He said they were shooting drones. Uh, they were launched by battleships within this one-mile security perimeter off the coast of Long Island. TWA was taking off from JFK and was doing basically your 2,500-foot stair-step altitude rise, and it breached the security perimeter. The submarine mistook it for a drone blip on the radar.
0: Well, that's what and- a lot of us, that's, that's one of the things that it's, that's one of the cover-ups I can kind of understand because, I mean, it's pretty hard to explain. We accidentally shot down a passenger or 30, train training. 30,
1: 32 page dribble from Wikipedia is absolutely disgusting. Yeah. Anyway, but long story short, he says, the first one went off and it, and it severed um, the, the the cockpit. And with all due respect to the, the, the victims, family members and survivors, I'm not going to get graphic here. But just on on a mechanical standpoint, first one came up through the wheel housing with the landing gear, right at the bulkhead between first class cabin and the and the uh, and the cockpit. That whole thing fell off, and I mean it, it just went off in a fireball. The second one, what they do is call the backstop missile system. If the first one doesn't take the target out, the second one will. Well, the second one launched eight count eight seconds later, and it was you had four engines on that that uh, plane going to an afterburner. I mean these things were were, they were just at full tilt, trying to get that plane up. We're talking a 747, full crew in in the cabin, and and they're hauling freight, mail, whatever, uh, you know, in in the belly of that plane, trying to get up to the cruising altitude of about 48,000 feet, 42 to 48,000, and just doing the stair step. All four of those engines are red hot. That second missile, if you count from left to right, one, two, three, and four, was uh, falling the heat trail of engine number three and it hit the engine cowling and went in between rows 17 and 19 and cut the rest of the plane in half like a big cleaver, just blew it out. It came in at about a four and a half foot diameter and left it over eight foot diameter. That's not a symmetrical blast from a standard fuel tank. It's total, excuse me, it's total horseshit. And for these, for the NTSB and the FAA and the, uh, the FBI and the port authority to pander the story that makes absolutely no sense, and General Parton, he said, "Yeah, he walked me through the whole thing." I, like I said, I I was just numb. I couldn't go to sleep. I was still thinking about it on the flight back to Oklahoma City.
0: Well, it's 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 and this is another huge story. And you had you had Parton was involved in that as well. You had as Chris Grace talks about the missing oh. missile videos. Uh, and this was again what uh, not only uh, Pierre Salinger was talking about, but you had right. Oliver Stone involved. Oliver Stone's made a documentary that was supposed to be in I think Showtime.
1: Right. Uh, has that
0: ever been seen? I mean, they just I squelched it.
1: I've heard about that, but here's Bob Sanders. Um, his wife was a fighter. Bob flightist.
0: Sanders, yes. Mm-hmm.
1: Yes. He, in fact, there was, I believe, I, how do I say this? Uh, the, my material, I passed on to a third party that said he was going to give it to Bob Sanders. I said, please don't give me credit I, because my family members have been threatened with their their job. Um, I, I don't want any reference to my name because I don't want to trickle them back and get them fired. And they were they were very gracious they agreed to that and um, so you know it's, it's just, it was horrible the, um, the victims they did find out um, had some of them were embedded with the shrapnel from the missiles the rocket propellant or the, the propellant in the missiles was burned into the seatbacks and the polyethylene seatbacks that the FBI summarily disposed of in a dumpster behind the Calverton hangar where the plane was being reassembled and it was so ludicrous that the FBI, uh, the debris field, they reversed it as though it was an incoming flight from uh, Charles de Gaulle as opposed to an outbound flight from JFK. They didn't know what the hell they were doing. It was it was completely insane. So uh, Bob Sanders found out through some just like we had some very good FBI agents. Not everybody's bad in the agency. They were showing them these incinerated these uh, incinerated seatbacks and the rocket propellant that was in- mixed in with the polyethylene. They had lab. Analysis done and done this, says, Yeah, this is not, this is not uh, type A jet fuel burning seatbacks. This is rocket propellant. And here's another wild thing that Sanders found out. He said, This was the tipping point. There's a lawyer in Newark, New Jersey, working out of his, his office at his house. And it was a uh, it was just a it was, I think a day or two after on a weeknight, gets a fax, and it was only off. The fax number was off by one from his fax number. From Teledyne Labs, the Skunk Works in California, sending him the schematics to one of these missiles. He got it by mistake because whoever sent it from Skunk Works got his fax number off by one digit. Holy crap! Yeah. You talk about <laughs> letting the cat out of the bag. So yeah. that's that's a whole nother discussion for another time. But um that that was then, and that that got back to Bob Sanders. He says, oh, by the way, you mind explaining why this guy's getting schematics from a missile that took down TW800.
0: Well, Sanders is still talking. He was supposed to be on. I, I still have to get back to him back it. We couldn't coordinate the time for him to come okay. I yeah, he's I've had Jack I've had Jack Cashel on a couple times. Right. Who's done good work on it? I would love to, you know, know <clears throat> what happened with I, I I can't believe Oliver Stone's documentary isn't available somewhere. It had to be filmed. Can I, can it's I, just,
1: let me lay out two other things here on TWA and I I know we gotta watch our time here. Sure, sure. Okay, so this is where the, the hand of God, I don't know, whatever deity you believe in, Muhammad, you know, Allah, Buddha, Krishna, whatever. I happen to be raised in the Christian faith. So the job I had in Oklahoma City was at the uh, hotel. I had to have a real job to pay the bills before we got the film out. We weren't, we didn't know where we were going to get the money for the film, let alone
0: right.
1: make any money on it. One of my Bellmen was going to the FAA training, it was an engine mechanic school in Oklahoma City. But he did his, um, his uh, basically his internship at uh, uh, Tinker Air Force Base, tearing apart Navy and Air Force and Marine planes, literally disassembling them. He'd come, come to work, and I could tell he had a little bit of grease under the fingernails. He says, you don't mind. I said, no, just keep it clean. I said, I know you just got back from your engine mechanic school. Don't worry about it. It's all good. And he says his boss at the FAA Center, or his teacher, get this. This guy was a 28-year uh, mechanic, a veteran of the um, TWA's um, uh, hub where they maintain the 747s and the rest of their fleet. Lambert Field is on the, on the east side of Missouri in, in St. Louis. Kansas City, Missouri on the west side of the state is where they would shuttle the 747s to be torn apart, literally from the wheels up, where they you know, put in new uh, avionics, uh, carpet, they've rearranged the seating configuration, whatever. This guy worked on all 42747s that the TWA leased from Boeing. They wouldn't they didn't buy them outright. It would have been a huge capital expenditure. So they had a better deal with leasing and rotating them out of the fleet. He tore apart all of those 42747s and he knew the serial number by heart of the one he recited to me on the phone. And I said, What is that number? He said, That was the tail number, excuse me, the tail number of the, the, the TWA 747 that was shot down. And he said that between, within, uh, within three hours of that crash, they had the top engineers from TWA and from Boeing and the top mechanics and the legal counsel from both companies. And they were in lockstep and they said, oh, hell no. This plane did not have a center fuel tank explosion. I said, how do you know? He says, Chris, they had seven, not one, not two, not five, but seven redundant systems built into that, so that well, should never how, happen. How many
0: witnesses did they, that, that reported seeing the, the missile? Or is it, is it was something... over
1: 120.
0: Yeah, I yeah. mean, it's, just, it's ridiculous. Uh, Kat Goida going back to, or uh, earlier, by the way, called you good looking, and somebody in Rockin', uh, Rockfin chat room said you look like George Clooney, so that, oh, that'll sorry. make you feel good, uh, but Kat <laughs> said, uh, did this excellent guest mention the whitewater files in the Oklahoma Murrah building? It's um, a
1: good question. Uh, we weren't able to um, nail that down, and that's why we we didn't really cover that in the film. We had to go with stuff that we could triple check, and it was it was solid. Now we were told by we did get some videotape from the Oklahoma County Sheriff's Office, and we I think we ran maybe about fifteen or twenty seconds of that in the film that did show that there were CIA documents in the in the uh, film, but oddly enough, and here's a an, god, I mean, you could just go off on so many tangents, but. The first time that we wanted to get a street permit just to hand out a survey to see if this movie was gonna be a bonafide, was there any interest? And it was at the uh, the Catholic Cathedral across the street from the Memorial. The guy that gave us the street permits, at the time of the bombing, he was just starting with the Oklahoma City, uh, uh, with, with the city itself. And he said that uh, the FBI commandeered one of the new street sweepers. And the reason I bring this up in the documents and even General Parton explained this to me when I was at his dining room table. He says that the ordinance that blew up inside the building and what they thought was actually in the truck, ANFO was just a sideshow. Um, he says created a funnel uh, or a mushroom cloud that was invisible that literally sucked the air out of that that entire, um, within about 35 or 40 feet of the epicenter of what blew up in the truck and in the building. And it was all electronic timers, by the way, this whole cock and bull story about it. a fuse is just complete crap. Um, anyway, he said that that invisible mushroom cloud literally sucked everything up within about seven blocks of the building, including what was in the building itself and just shot it straight up in the air. And It distributed, and there was a, it was a headwind and we found out from the National Weather Service on the records, a 40-mile-an-hour headwind coming into the building. so It just shot all those papers that were launched over 400 feet in the air over downtown Oklahoma City, the FBI hired out, got this brand new street sweeper that was barely out of the box, so to speak. And they were sucking up all the papers. Yeah. They didn't want any of that stuff to come out. Well,
0: you hear, you hear the same. We heard the same thing about what was what was in, uh, you know, building seven for 9-11 and why, why they had to destroy it. You know, it was records of the CIA or something. You hear these things all the time. But um, the early the early local news coverage from Oklahoma City that used to be available out there, where you could watch all the news reporters talk detailed descriptions of bombs being discovered in there. The early report that they were constantly talking about bombs. Correct. Much as we much as we would see on nine eleven with all the firefighters, Devin.
1: That's what Devin Skilly had told me. Uh, he said when he he uh, had his uh, neighbor rush him downtown in the uh, in the squad car, the county squad car. Uh, they got to the newsroom and they said, "Oh yeah." And the odd thing was that it went from a car to a van to a um, or pickup truck to a van and then to the, uh, the rider truck. But what we found out from 12 of the uh, survivors in the building was a Windows 95 class. Remember this is April 95. They just got done with the beta test on Windows 95. This was the first rollout of, of their package. A training class on the ninth floor, all 12 people in that class hit the floor because they thought it was an earthquake. Well, mm-hmm. where did that come from? Well, that came from the controlled demolition in the building. When did the windows blow in? Five to eight seconds after the building started coming down. If they did not hit the deck and go into the desks, he said some of those people would have been impaled and basically pinned to the wall by flying glass. And some of them would have been decapitated. So there's there's a huge disconnect of what actually happened and the narrative. It doesn't make any sense. So as a film crew, we just we said, the hell with this. We're going to clear the table. Let's put together a storyline that actually makes sense based on the Justice Department's own documents. Based on the people that came within an inch of their lives, for God's sakes, and the victims, family members and survivors that saw what was coming out in, in the you know the, the reports that morning and their their experiences after uh, uh, their loved ones had passed on and what they were being told. And then, of course, Devin Skillian basically uh, spilled the beans. He says, hey, um, I can't come on your film, but I'm going to tell you what happened. This is what we saw in the newsroom that morning.
0: Well, Chris, Chris has mentioned Dr. Randall Heather a few times. What do What do you know about him? That he said that there were sophisticated devices found inside the Murrow building. Uh,
1: Doctor Heather was um, he was credible oh, in in the early days, but uh, I think he he basically was an apologist. He 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 was given a good talking to.
0: Oh, and, okay, yeah,
1: yeah. We don't want him to come on the the film because we knew that what he was going to say was um, it just wouldn't had any credibility, and we just left it at that.
0: Sure, well, the cat asked if you ever met Bill Cooper, but Bill Cooper died right before 9 11. So, I guess if you didn't start this film no. till later, you know, you didn't.
1: <laughs> no, I uh, I, I did not have the chance to meet Mr. Cooper.
0: And then we have the uh, there's so, there's so many. It's we had Frank Keating, the governor, governor Frank Keating, obviously led was right in the middle of that cover up. His brother wrote uh, that Mark, novel right with uh, Tom McVeigh, Tom McVeigh. Instead hold of Tim on, one, <laughs> on one
1: second, hold on, I'm going to get that.
0: Sure. Lots of interesting stuff. Of,
1: a, yeah. This is, this is it right here. The the final jihad, Martin Keating. This is actually the second um, print. <laughs> the The first printing was actually came out um, and was. Here's the weird thing. The first printing came out and uh, the manuscript was approved for printing. Uh, I believe in January of '95. Well. The bombing doesn't happen until April, so try to put that wrap your head around that.
0: So, <laughs> okay. Yeah, pretty amazing. That's uh <laughs> it's one of those kind of coincidences we see way too. We don't know what necessarily what it means, but I mean, come on, that's that's yep. a little it's a, that's a little amazing <laughs> considering the connections there. So, what tell us about because we got a little less than fifteen minutes left. So, what are you? What's your latest project? What are you working on? What, what are, do you have any upcoming projects you're working on?
1: Uh, there's a few in the, in the works right now. I'm uh, working, uh, and Mary Ellen and I talked about this, but I've got a, a non-disclosure agreement on there. Uh, it's with a, a completely different uh, film studio. We're going to try to collaborate. Um, right now, we have a, a renewed interest in our films. Um, just to give you a little background, Netflix. So our film comes out in December 2011. A lot of folks weren't aware of this, and we thought, well, as you know, the old saying is, if you're over the target, and they're going to start shooting at you. You know, you're doing the right thing, or you're, you're credible. It, you know, yes, film has something. So, so the, the film releases in December of 2011. In February of 2012, we had a, a, a great film agent. We had three all altogether. Uh, this particular one put us in touch with Netflix. Netflix vets our film for 42 days. They they go through with a fine tooth comb. They want to make sure. All your digital downloads, if you have any attributions to the internet, uh, film clips, music, everything is in order. If you're using music, you've got to have the copyrights. We literally had a binder this thick of all everything in, in sheet protectors just to make sure that everything was fide. All three of our films, I registered them with the Library of Congress. Anyway, why would Netflix spend 42 days vetting our film? And they bumped us actually to a second tier of compensation from what I was told um, because they knew the film was so good that said, hey, we're, we're not going to pay you entry level fee on this. We want you, we're going to bump you up because we know we're going to do good. Your agent's going to it's standard industry, 20% and you guys do good. And we went off to the races three days after our film is on the portfolio. I get a call from a colleague of mine in Sydney, Australia wakes me up at two o'clock in the morning and says, Hey, I just got on uh, Netflix and, um, your film's not under anymore. I shot up in bed and I said, What are you talking about? I call my agent in LA. It's 12 midnight there. This guy never swears, but I tell you what, he was dropping the F bomb. He was not happy. And uh, and I, I was surprised to, to hear how upset he was. And he says, No, this never happens. He says, I knew this movie was going to be touchy, but he says, For Netflix to drop it after three days, he says, There's something horribly wrong here. Just so happens his contact with Netflix had left and worked for a um, public relations firm in D.C. He'd been with this firm for about a month. Gives him a phone call the next morning. and He says, all right, give me a couple of weeks. Let me dig into this. So he gets his contact with this PR firm in D.C., our agent in L.A., and then there's three of us in Oklahoma City. And he says, one of two things happened. He said, somebody from the White House or the Justice Department called Netflix and told them to pull the film while well, they're, they're wagging that FCC license over their head. Mm-hmm. So they got they got these guys over the barrel. Now there were two other forms of uh, of the uh, Oklahoma City documentary on there, but that it was the apologist version. It you know supported the official narrative. We were the only one that came in basically on the on the opposite direction, and Netflix loved it, but they were told to pull it. So I thought, book well, says, all right. So that's how they're going to do us. We ended up going full tilt with uh, Infowars and sold. 26,000 DVDs in 37 different countries, I believe, in, within a matter of nine months. just took off like a rocket.
0: Yeah, so it was huge. People, yeah. obviously huge demand out there. Chris has asked several times, and I, I neglected to ask you, uh, did you ever hear about the missing missile videos in terms of uh, TWA 800? Did you see anything like that, or have you heard anything about that? No,
1: no, I, I do, I do want to say this, and this is, again, this is really a kind of peculiar. Jesse Trinidad was the independent lawyer that we interviewed, his brother was murdered, obviously. And right, his right, right, right. Okay. I met basically his counterpart. In fact, I put him in touch. Get this it's a retired United uh, pilot that was rated on the 747. And um, he flew with United, I think, at the time I was speaking with him. He had just retired. He's with him for 29 years. So this guy knew all the flight decks, flew all, all the equipment. And uh, even before he was with United, he flew 747 with a uh, freighter service. Uh, Anyway, uh, and he sued to get to your question about the, uh, the the tapes. He's living in L.A. at the time I'm talking to him. God, what the heck was his name? Ralph. Um, I, forget, I remember the first name. Anyway, I says you're not going to believe this. He says, you are taking your approach to this case like Jesse Trinity did with Oklahoma City. He said, would you mind talking to Jesse maybe to get yeah. some tips? Because we're talking about a retired pilot here, not a lawyer. And he's mm-hmm. trying to navigate his way through federal court in, in uh, Los Angeles. He's the plaintiff. And the defendants are the CIA, the FBI, the NTSB, and the FAA. <laughs> Boy. Holy cow. You talk about having the deck stacked. Yeah. And uh, the judge actually, uh, you know, and he worked with an attorney in L.A. And he got tips from Jesse. And the judge actually uh, ruled in his favor in, in several instances. But it came down, They hit a brick wall, and the, the CIA refused to show up in court. And present any of the tapes. The only tape that they presented was that cock and bull animation tape that they had on the the, uh, the official narrative, which is on still on YouTube to this day.
0: Right. And I hope that answers your question, Chris. Yeah, but and, and Chris reminds me that you know I, I've I've interviewed so many people that I forgot. I I uh, he said Oliver Son's documentary was never fell. I thought it was, but uh, Christina Bjornsen, who I was had I had on my show a few years back, I was hired for it, so I should have remembered that. Uh, chris but to, so what what's when you're looking out there okay you, you worked on oklahoma city you're talking about the connections between that and 9-11 mm. uh what you think of something in the future what uh, what what interests you i mean there's so many things going on now with covid uh the trump phenomenon election fraud i mean there's so many things is there anything else that's catching your eye while well, you know i got it. i'm mean, gonna we'll do this in the future the
1: people, yeah the people that uh it'll cross our radar once in a while i i had uh in fact, the very fine gentleman, a great director of photography and filmmaker in Dallas who worked on our third film with us. We're talking about a project that, um, dealing with the this um, uh, the latest debacle on in, in Ohio and, you know, the, the malfeasance and the, um, the incompetence of the railroads and how, yeah, us, yeah. how this could happen. And uh, what's his name? Um, Buttigieg, that... Uh, incompetent uh, director of yes. <laughs> yeah. blurted out. He said, yeah, there's there's about 1,100 of these that happen a year. Well, come to find out, he was telling the truth. You know, whether or not we were supposed to hear that, that's either here or there. But uh, I think there would be an interesting documentary to go back and say, you know, what, how do these happen and what's, where are the people now? Basically, where are they now? You know, go step back in time 20 years and see how these cases have either increased in frequency or severity or, um, you know, do the railroads are they just playing the numbers game where uh, they'll they'd rather take their chances on something happening and pay out versus spending the money to prevent it in the first place. So there's an interesting you know correlation and uh, perspective there, and that that's something that uh, we we're
0: thinking about working on.
1: But there's there's some other projects, but I I can't go into detail on them right now.
0: Sure, I'm saying if you've got any Never more... Got
1: cost for material, God forbid, you
0: know. No, I mean there's there's you know. So much, and and uh, glad to see uh, <clears throat> my friend uh, O R Busy from the U K. We had uh, Jonathan Hale earlier from Sydney, Australia. So people all over the world. I, I love it when we hear from obviously all the regulars here in the chat. By the way, uh,
1: shout out to Sydney uh, if he's still listening. Uh, I was over there for two and a half months uh, working on a film back in 2010, and um, their version of a local PBS radio station uh, interviewed me and did a wonderful job everybody rolled out the red carpet over in sydney and i was just very appreciative of that and look forward to going back sometime
0: well that's good that's it's great and uh now we got the five minutes left so what what do we what it, i want to make sure you cover everything you want to cover and you're right we could do many other interviews What any what else do you want to touch on in the last few minutes here that i might have missed or i think didn't ask that, you about?
1: the the connection with oklahoma city and 9-11 um i, I think i sent you the link kevin ryan uh, who's done a wonderful job? If you uh, under um, dig within, he's got a really good blog. It's it's kind of a, a early version of Substack. Um, mm-hmm. uh, he's he's done an amazing job, Kevin Ryan, and he's a retired. Well, no, he, he used to be a water chemist with Underwater Labs. One of the first guys on a professional uh, level that came out and started asking questions about the veracity of the demolition of the World Trade Center towers and what actually caused them. He was fired, rehired by another counterpart, uh, similar to Underwater Labs, and his boss says, hey, write all you want, just don't do it on company time, but I'm behind you 100%. So luckily he had that support. Um, But Kevin uh, did a a great deep dive and and compared um, 9-11 to uh, Oklahoma City, and I can get into further detail if you want on another interview. I'll open up this dossier and let you know what we, if you can imagine, we're getting this information and we're still trying to get our head wrapped around what's going on with Oklahoma City so we could only really concentrate on one with all of this other cache of information clearly showing that 9-11 was was complete crap on the official narrative just by by where That's where, where these coming from and how they started out the whole story and where they were it's like no that makes absolutely no
0: sense so oh, yeah. yeah the just, idea that to, and, I, and I apologize to William Hale I don't, you know I, I, your name wasn't in front of me. I should know you well, William from Sydney, Australia. So please forgive me for uh, uh, calling you Jonathan. I think obviously it's William Hale, and I really appreciate that. So when you're, um, so do you work with Mary Ellen regularly? Is she uh, right? Or
1: we, um, yeah, we we talk basically on a weekly basis, right? Yeah, it's it's great. Mary Ellen is amazing, and I um, <clears throat> I mean, we can have her on. She's got an interesting yes, back, and I'll let you tell her. I'll let her tell you uh, her background and her work with uh, uh, the Olympics, I believe, back in 2000, if I'm not mistaken, Mary Ellen. you got an awesome backstory on that. And um, she introduced me to, um, bless his heart, he passed on a few years ago, but uh, this is about, I'm going to say, four years ago. Um, I met Mr. Uh, um, He's a former, who's the secretary, Mr. Minetta, during on 9-11. He was the one that gave the orders to ground all the, um Leanne, yeah, yeah, Norman yeah.
0: Norman Minetti, yeah.
1: yeah yeah I got to meet him and his wife and uh um so and it was it was very very good visit and it was very honored to meet him so anyway there's there's yeah it's it's great she brings so much to the the table for us and you know, the film crew it's it's unbelievable we're just absolutely blessed to have her with us
0: Oh, and Mary Ellen, she and she's in the uh the chat and she says uh, and my clinton story yes so she, she has a bill clinton story Yes. Did he harass you, or what was he, are you one of the uh, estimated million people that he had tried to hit on? Or?
1: God only knows. But uh, he was a flight attendant with Delta, and just amazing backstory and, and phenomenal career with the airline. So, um,
0: yeah. And what, uh, Just I just have a few more things here. Uh, William Hale again. I'm sorry, William. Dr. Judy Wood details the Towers destruction in her book. Do- Dr. Judy Wood's very. Uh, a controversial figure people. Right. What do you, what do you think for her?
1: I never really uh, got a chance to uh, look at her work in depth. I, I hear it. Uh, there, there's some credibility to it, but honestly, I, I can't see, you know, say thumbs up or thumbs down. I'd have to look at it for some time to review it before I make any comments. So,
0: yeah, I'm not sure. Well, I want to make sure. And Tony, if you're out there <laughs> listening, cause Tony closed the show for us, come on. He usually jumps in for the last few minutes. If you have any questions for, uh, for Chris. And uh, he, he knew of you and he he's said good things about you. I think he's had you on his show in the past, but uh, I want you to... Name? What's that? What's his name again? Tony Arterburn. Oh, yes. Yes. Excellent. Oh, and yes. there he is I,
1: now. Yeah, great was, show. And I've I've uh, talked to Chris and we've had a, a show. I replay
0: that uh, pretty much every year now.
1: Oh, wow. Thank
0: uh, you. Yes. On the city.
1: Oh, it, it, uh, it's great. And it was great to see your name pop up uh, before the show. So thank you.
0: Yeah, he's, he's my producer and we do America Unplugged every Saturday too with Billy Ray Valentine on this same uh, station. So I want to give you a chance to promote anything uh, you have to promote or and give out well, any links or anything you want to do.
1: Yeah, we just, um, every, we've just uh, we just had an upgrade to our website. Uh, Michael Walters, who has been with us since day one, since October 2010. Uh, wow. Um, he did a great job. Uh, freemindfilms.com. And um, there's the links to all three films. They're free to watch. We make our money on the ad revenue. And uh, link down below uh, to the imdb.com profile. An interview with Owen Schroer from last year where we correlate Merrick Garland, who was a special U.S. prosecutor with the Oklahoma City case, and what he did uh, to completely um, derail any credible investigation. of.
0: Uh, yeah, we should have touched on boy Boy, that's – and that shows you guys. If you want to know how long these – Merrick Garland, he goes back to Oklahoma City. These people are career criminals. I'm sorry. Just before what you. we
1: have an Oklahoma City, and I'm not being flipping on this. We know. I, I, I can go back in the archives and look at it. Uh, Stephen Jones, Tim McVeigh's uh, defense counsel, gave our film crew full and unfettered access to 142 boxes of legal documents. We surmised about 90% of that the jury never even saw. It was horrendous. And Merrick Garland was instrumental in making sure that happened. He should be in federal prison right now in Leavenworth, Kansas. Right now, just on what he did in Oklahoma City alone.
0: Well, just the fact that he just—it was amazing. After Tucker Carlson showed the footage he showed uh, from January sixth, he still got up and lied and kept talking about five police officers dying yeah. with that. I mean, this is the this is the Attorney General of the United States. I'm well, sorry. We're, we're
1: going. Yeah, I found out he was going to be nominated by Joe Biden to be Attorney General, I—I I, I hit the roof. I—I I literally had to compose myself. I was just beyond myself. I said, my God, that's the worst thing you could do. And sure enough, it just.
0: Yeah, we well, you know up. the past these people. Sir. So any other, uh, Kat wants to know that the name of the movie is Oklahoma City, a noble lie. She missed the name of it. It's, uh, it's
1: a noble lie, Oklahoma City. Oh, I'm sorry.
0: No, no It's yeah. okay. That's all right.
1: Yeah. And it's on the website, uh, freemindfilms.com.
0: Fantastic. Well, Christopher Emery, thank you so much for coming. Uh, you're a wealth of information. Thank you. We could do a show about uh, TWA 800, a, a show of, uh, just about Oklahoma City, which was this was mostly Oklahoma City or anything else, 9-11, anything. So you, you're you doing great work. And uh, thanks again to Mary Ellen Moore for uh, getting us together. And thanks, everybody in the chat room, everybody in Rockfin. Thanks for listening. Thanks again, Chris. And uh, I'll have to have you back on. It's
1: always an thank honor. Thank you,
0: everybody. Happy Easter. We'll see you next Friday. Take care.